Today's episode of the Survival Podcast. I think it's 3244 or 3245. Uh, 3244, the title's right in front of me. And today is Wednesday, and we are back to regularly scheduled programming, at least for today. Uh, Professor CJ Kilmer standing on a little by right now. We'll be bringing him on in just a moment. We're going to be talking about the decline and fall of empires. I'm excited about this one because there's a lot of talk about old empires and how they fell, but they don't really, people tend to like, I don't know, microwave society today. Everything is, is not seen in time context anymore. And it's like, Oh, there was an empire and then it fell. But the decline is the part that gets left out by a lot of people. I'm sure we'll dig deep into that today. And I'm sure there's a lot of patterns for us to recognize that in the modern day. So I'll bring CJ on in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one is uh, JM Bullion. You know, I talk a lot about Bitcoin, guys, but I am still, I'm not just a Satoshi stacker, a SAT stacker. I am a silver stacker from way back. I've been stacking silver here and there and on and off since the 1990s. And I do believe that it is one of the great every man's form of wealth preservation. Maybe we'll even ask CJ a little bit about precious metals in history today or something like that. But the point is, why would you pay more for the same silver? Why would you deal with a company where you can't get problems rectified? Why would you deal with some giant company who could deal with a company like JM Bullion that has better pricing than the big silver houses like Monix and Atmex? I have a direct line in to the president of the company. That's why they're a sponsor. I won't do that without that capability. And uh, they also ship all your orders for free, and it's the same silver you get anywhere else for less money and less hassle. So why go anywhere but JM Bullion? And if you're an MSB member, you get a discount. That's pretty cool. Who gets you a discount on silver and gold? I do. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. Guys, look, you can have a wonderful box of meat shipped to your front door once a month or every other month if you don't use as much meat as maybe I do. ButcherBox is awesome. Guys, I actually take my payment for the for, for sponsorship from ButcherBox and credit to buy my own meat. That's right. I get a giant box of meat every month shows up at my place. You've got recurring add-ons. It is just amazing to have this top quality protein shipped straight to you. Always high quality. Check them out today. Butcherbox.com. And again, members, you get a discount on every box. $10 a box for life. That's $120 a year. My membership's 50 freaking dollars. How's that work out? That works out well for you. With that, I want to go ahead and bring our uh, special guest, uh, back on with us, or I should say on with us. He was on with me earlier, uh, C.J. Kilmer. C.J., man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. It's really great to talk to you again. It's been a while. Yes, it has. It's been quite a while, and I know a lot of things have changed for both of us in that time. Can you tell people, before we get into empires, what they are, how they fall apart, and how they eventually crumble to nothingness, who is C.J. Kilmer, and uh, what has he been up to? Okay, so um, I went to college and kind of just went with the flow. I was like, I don't even know why I'm here. And uh, I decided to get a history degree because I was like, well, history seems kind of interesting. That's cool. Um, so I got a bachelor's degree in history. I was like, well, I guess I'll go to graduate school because that just seems like the, the default thing you do then. 
And so I went to graduate school and uh, I got a master's degree in history. And uh, then for a variety of reasons, even though I was kind of on track to go right into the Ph.D. program, uh, I opted out. And so then kind of the best thing I could do with my degree um, was to try to get a full time teaching job at a community college because universities, they won't hire you for a full time job uh, now if you don't have a Ph.D., so anyway, I got a community college teaching job, um, and I, I taught college history for a total of 16 years, and I have a very unorthodox take on history compared to most academic historians, to put it uh, mildly. <laughs> and finally, um, last August, after 22 years in academia, six years as a student, 16 years as a professor, um, I threw in the towel and walked away to pursue full-time something I'd been doing part-time for quite a while, because back in 2014, I started a show called the Dangerous History Podcast that um, is basically me covering history in the – imagine um, a libertarian anarchist you know, take on history, right? Imagine – um, if you could, you know, take Murray Rothbard and mix him with Dan Carlin, um, that's sort of what I aim at. So I've got, you know, a variety of episodes. I've got long episodes that are, you know, multi-hour solo narrative ones. Um, I've got, you know, do interview shows with people as well and random shorter episodes. So, yeah, the Dangerous History Podcast started as a hobby, turned into a side hustle. And now it's sort of the centerpiece of my budding uh, Internet content creation empire. Awesome. Awesome. See, I'm really glad to hear that you have another podcaster yet having made that journey. Um, it's not an easy one, but it's a, it's definitely one worth doing. I always say people say, well, what do you like? What do you like about what you do now? And it's, well, it's better than a real job. Uh, and then the freedom, yeah, I mean, go, right. The freedom can be terrifying, but the freedom is also very liberating. Yeah, for sure. And in my case, you know, it was all the normal stresses and hassles of a nine to five job. And I, I had a particularly long commute. I had a commute that was almost an hour each way every day. And, um, you know, so all that having to show up at an office and, you know, hang out with people, some of whom were cool and some of whom weren't. And, yeah. um, but on top of that, you know, for somebody like me who is, um, interested in ideas and questioning all the normal narratives and whatever like that to be in conventional academia was like an extra layer of, of hassle because as my listening knows, academia is just an overwhelming ideological monolith. I mean like 95 plus percent of people who work in academia basically think the same way about everything, believe, you know, whatever CNN tells them to believe that day, they're all, all in on whatever the current thing is. And so, you know, it, it's just not a, not a happy environment to be in if you're somebody like me who's just a natural, um, kind of a natural rebel in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's, yeah, we could, we, we have to probably get off that or we'll just do a whole show on how academia has turned into a freaking disaster that's less concerned with the truth and more concerned with the narrative. So let's get on to our narrative yeah. today, which is <laughs> empire and the, 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 the decline and fall of empires. Like I said during my intro segment, I'm very interested in that discussion because it seems like people tend to get into this mindset of, you know, you study history and there's like a byline of this and a byline of that. And there's 
20 years, 30 years, 100 years between those two things. But it gets studied in this condensed mindset of, well, this happened and then that happened. So when people talk about the fall of Rome today and they compare it to us, I think sometimes they leave out the uh, multi-century period of time where Rome was still a thing and it was in decline the entire time and they lose a sense of timelines. But before we can even get into that, what can we define what is empire? What makes a nation state or a group of nation states or confederation or whatever it is, a true empire? Right. So this is something I think a lot of Americans in particular get wrong and misunderstand. And I think it's partly because a lot of Americans seem to get their concept of what an empire is purely from Star Wars. And maybe that's not like the last word on political science terminology and whatever like that. And so, you know, a lot of Americans, if you ask them, like, is the United States an empire? They'll go, well, obviously we're not because we don't have a monarch who calls himself an emperor. So clearly yeah. we can't be. But, you know, the reality is that there have been plenty of empires throughout history that their form of government was something other than a monarchy. So, you know, Rome began uh, its expansion and built a lot of its empire while it was still nominally a republic at home. Um, you know, the, the Dutch built a global empire when they were a republic. Um, France is kind of an interesting one. France started building an empire while they were still a monarchy. Then, you know, they had some revolutions and got rid of the monarch and became a republic, but they kept the empire, right? They kept, you know, their, their colonies in West Africa and Indochina and whatever like that. So obviously we can't say that an empire, an empire is the, Defined by, oh, it has to have somebody, um, a monarch in charge of it who calls themselves an emperor. So the ultimately what empires are defined by is expansion. And so I actually do have a quote here. This is from um, an historian primarily of the British Empire named Stephen Howe. And it's from a little book called Empire, A Very Short Introduction. And so this is his definition of empire. And this is a definition that I think fits everything that we would ever label an empire was ancient or modern. So Stephen Howe says, a kind of basic consensus definition would be that an empire is a large body which rules over territory outside its original borders. And then a little bit later on, he elaborates, and he says, an empire is a large, composite, multi-ethnic or multinational political unit, usually create conquest and divided between a dominant center and subordinate, sometimes far distant peripheries. Mm. Okay, and it's end of the quote, but yeah. So it's defined by expansion. It's a political authority that expands far beyond whatever its original people and territories was. Takes in a wide variety of people under its control. And he also alludes to something that's important in understanding empires is there's always a center and then there's the peripheries. And the center is like where the, the financial and political power and decision making tends to be concentrated. And there's kind of differing layers of peripheries as you go out, um, places that are, you know, less developed, have less, possibly less control over, you know, self-government internally, um, or, you know, somewhat less. So just, you know, kind of uh, spoiling the plot a little bit, we can return to this later. Um, you know, I definitely very much believe the United States of America is an empire. And if agree. you look at Howe's definition that I just read, it checks every box, the United States. Yeah. And, you know, just to, to illustrate this whole center versus periphery, like I would argue that the the U.S. empire 
its center is really like from DC to New York City. Maybe you could also run it up to Boston too. But that whole like, you know, central to northeast coast region, that's the ultimate like center and metropolis of this empire. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, some some impoverished rust belt town in you know, Michigan or or Ohio is clearly not part of the center and neither no. is, you know, the, the Western Montana Rockies, neither is Alaska. Um, neither is Hawaii also, or, you know, American yeah, Samoa exactly. or, uh, Saipan or, you know, all these other places that we have hooks into. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's me too. Um, another act of empire that Americans see, look, when they're trying to, because, for sure, establishment, um, like media and political commentators and establishment academics, they very much mostly want you to believe that the U.S. is not and could never possibly be an empire. And um, so there's a concept that historians and political scientists who study empires often uh, use, and that is they'll differentiate between what they call formal or direct imperialism and informal or indirect imperialism and most empires in history use a combination of both in terms of how they operate Um, but formal or direct imperialism is when an imperial ever just flat out takes over a territory and you know like officially is like this is now under our flag this is now under our government it is a province of us or whatever boom right there's no uh, anything like that whereas uh, informal or indirect imperialism is where the imperial power takes a place over, but doesn't do it like officially, right? So, you know, you can contrast like when the U.S. took over Puerto Rico, formal imperialism. That's, that is, this is now under the United States government officially. Yeah. But, um, you know, other places that say are to one degree or another American informal or indirect imperial possessions, right? Like Afghanistan was for 20 years. Um, South Vietnam was during the Vietnam War era. Um, and you could argue that, you know, even countries that seem more independent, like Japan or the European uh, members of NATO, they're also to some degree informal or indirect imperial possessions of the U.S. Um, and you can see this in other empires, too. I mean, uh, the, yeah, the, the Romans, um, think about like King Herod under the Romans. He was like their sock puppet guy. He was hmm. theoretically a, a monarch of, uh, you know, what would have been called the time Judea, I think. But he was a Roman sock puppet, and he pretty much had to do what they wanted. And, um, you know, the British did that, too. The British ruled Egypt for like 70 or 80 years informally. They occupied it militarily. They basically told the Egyptian gov what to do. Um but they never officially said, oh, this is now fully a part of the British Empire. It was always like, no, 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 no. This is just a temporary thing to guard the Suez Canal. And it lasted 80 years. So that's another thing to keep in mind is this, you know, that empires are not only direct. They're usually a combination of direct and indirect. So, yeah, well, I, I think we you know, I've been doing terms. a lot of reading. I've been doing a lot of reading about America before Columbus. I've read 1491. And I've dug into some other things and it makes there's like empires were right here. Some of the, uh, you know, we think of Native American uh, 
were actually empires like the Aztecs and the Mexico and what have you. And you see the same pattern repeat. Sometimes the conquest was direct. The armies march out, go to another place, burn down whatever, whatever resist them, kill all of the rulers, destroy the line of secession in, in a monarchy and take over. Just as often, it was like we start trade with this place. We bring in our advanced technology for the time. We start moving them in our direction, and then basically they become a vassal with not a shot or fired an arrow thrown or a spear embedded in anybody. And so the other the other ruler will play ball and submit. So, okay, you know, and they'll pass a tribute, and it'll be good. And it's like that's like a mix of what you call hard and soft power, and that's what the United States has really done in the expansion of its empire. Soft power works because we print all the money. And soft power works because we have significant hard power if we need it. And that's, to me, I think the United States might be the largest empire that's ever existed. Yeah, it's the one that has come closest to being global, I would say. You know, the, the British were the closest before them. Um, but, you know, if you measure the American empire by its informal um, influence, in control in addition to its formal then yeah um and as of right now thanks to the uh sort of artificial backstop of the dollar being the reserve world currency um it's able to get away with things that other empires in history were not able to get away with can we start talking about now what causes empires to begin decline like where do they reach this kind of high tide line and then Everything from there just kind of is, is downward across time. Sure. So the way I like to think about it is um, try to differentiate between proximate causes and ultimate causes. So proximate causes are like specific individual problems or things that happen. Um, but in most cases, when people point to proximate causes to explain a particular empire's decline and fall – um, I don't think they're really getting to the root of it. The root of it would be um, what we would call ultimate causes. So, you know, the, the metaphor I sometimes use to explain this is um, imagine somebody dies of a disease that has a relatively low fatality rate, right? Like flu or woo okay. flu or whatever like that, right? Now, if you look at somebody uh, who dies of flu or COVID, and let's even set aside, you know, all the questions of is it from or with or you know yeah i got you let, let's just assume that they're they're being honest even with all the stats um but still you raise the question um that okay but why if like 99 plus percent of people get this disease and are sick for a few weeks and then are fine why did this one person uh get the disease and go down right so people will point to economic problems they'll they'll point to invasion and war they'll point to um, ecological problems even and say look that's why this empire declined and fell um but to me it's always like well but why was the empire so fragile and non-resilient because healthy thriving societies and systems are able to bounce back from major disasters and setbacks i mean the mm. romans the bloodiest day in Roman history was the Battle of Cannae, where Hannibal wiped out an entire Roman army. And yet, despite that horrific defeat, Rome was able to bounce back and ultimately win that war and take over you know, the whole Mediterranean. Whereas Rome, a few centuries later, uh, is 
you know, suddenly getting getting beat by like half-assed barbarians who yeah. would have been a joke to their to their great great grandfathers or whatever. Um, so anyway, I, I I think where I'm at right now um, in thinking about this is that there's sort of like two ultimate causes that cause an empire to decline and then make it vulnerable to all of these particular, you know, it's like it weakens the immune system of the system basically. Um, and so one of them is what we might call uh, a generational cycle kind of dynamic where right. eventually, and, and it, it takes different amounts of time with different empires and there's tons of, you know, variables like their culture, their economy, um, who are their, their rivals and opponents that they're dealing with. And so this can happen more slowly or more quickly. Uh, but I do believe that there is this like idea of generational cycles at play where um, you'll have a generation that sort of like starts and builds an empire. And then over time, the quality of the leadership declines and kind of think about it as, as that, that old cliche of what is it? Uh, good men, strong men create good times, good times, create weak men, weak men, create bad times, uh, bad times, create strong men, right? Like that, that whole idea or the, or the idea of like family dynasties, the old shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations where the people who, who built the system, they they're you know they're often nasty people empire yeah. builders but they usually are competent and they're usually they're corrupt to some degree because political leaders always are but yeah. their corruption is like limited to where it doesn't like wreck everything right yeah. um and so but then fast forward three four five however many generations and inevitably a corrosion starts to happen where the later generations uh, of you know, especially the elites, but to a lesser extent, even just the average citizens, they're like people who were born into multi-generational family wealth, who have have no concept of, of how hard it was to build, really don't understand how it works, and take everything for granted and are super duper arrogant. And so that's, in, in my opinion, that's one ultimate cause that eventually, sooner or later, gets every empire, is is this just sort of generational decline. Um, and then the other one is what's sometimes called general systems collapse or um, complex systems collapse. And this comes from a book that some of your listeners may be familiar with. Um, it's got a bit of a following in kind of prepper circles. It's a book called um, The Collapse of, of Complex Societies by a guy named Joseph Tainter. And he, he basically argues that any complex society is is vulnerable eventually to decline and even collapse and that part of what's going on is when a, an empire in this example is building itself as it grows, it adds layers of complexity. It adds additional rules and regulations. It adds additional bureaucracies. It adds additional units and things to the armies. Right. And for a while, each new layer of complexity adds um, benefits to the system as a whole, makes the system as a whole stronger, you know, more efficient, more cohesive at doing what it's doing, right? Sure. But that eventually you reach a point of diminishing and then negative returns on that path where after a while, each additional layer of complexity makes the system more fragile and less productive and, and less, you know, strong and um, cohesive. 
And with an empire, it's not just that they're like growing the, the bureaucracy and complexity and all that of the state. It's also that an empire is going to be acquiring new territories and new people over time. And that's adding another dimension of complexity because now you've got way more different territories uh, to keep track of. You know, think about the, the U.S. military, um, how, I mean, there's, there's entire military commands that are like dedicated to U.S. military uh, running Africa. You know, there's AFRICOM. Yeah. Yeah. In, yeah. What, in, in, in what universe does it make sense for, you know, a, a bunch of mostly white American uh, generals to be calling the shots over what happens in Africa? And um, how is this not, you know, imperialism, number one? But think about how much attention and resources that the American government lavishes on faraway places like Somalia or Ukraine or whatever. And then meanwhile, they can't even you know, take care of things in their own backyard. They, they can't uh, secure their own border. They can't keep Chinese balloons from flying over us or whatever. Um, but man, do they care about what's happening in Ukraine, you know? So anyway, that, that's, that to me is like my, um, my, my two main factors that are like at the root of imperial decline, the generational decline, and then this complex systems problem. And um, if I could just, just share you one more uh, uh, quote so this is from Montesquieu, the 18th century French uh, philosopher who was a big influence on our founding fathers. And um, a, a really interesting book of his, one of his lesser known works, it's called um, Considerations on the Causes of the Romans and Their Decline. And so this is, this is what he says along the lines of, of what I was saying. He says, it is not chance that rules the world. Ask the Romans, who had a continuous sequence of successes when they were a certain plan, and an uninterrupted sequence of reverses when they followed another. There are general causes, moral and physical, which act in every empire, elevating it, maintaining it, or hurtling it to the ground. All accidents are controlled by these causes, and if the chance of one battle, that is a particular cause, has brought a state to ruin, some general cause made it necessary for that state to perish from a single battle. In a word, the main trend draws with it all particular, all, uh, all particular accidents. Um, and, and quote there. So again, this idea of a, a healthy person doesn't just keel over from the flu. So yeah, the flu might be the straw that broke the camel's back, but you have to look back and so, there must okay, be something under, underlying cause, right? For for an yeah, empire that, like that goes Rome, back a long time. Yeah, for an empire like Rome to fall apart, you had to have systemic underlying issues. You, the things that happened that get blamed for it, it stood against far worse. That's what you're saying. I I, I think the anal analogy to third, fourth, fifth generational wealth is very spot on. I think it's the same phenomenon that. These people, by the time, like right now, the people in charge of our government and making these decisions and part in charge of the oligarch component of our government as well, they grew up with America as the dominant force in the world. They don't know another way for things to be. So people that grow up like that begin to believe like it's just a birthright. It just will always be the way that it is. So instead of seeing to seeing to solving problems, so that you can maintain that position of power, they seem to solely maintain and grow the power itself. And inevitably, that leads to making all types of bad calculations like, 
yeah, gee, we need to have a military command over Africa. That makes sense, right? That that makes I mean that makes there should be not a U.S. military troop on the ground in Africa. One, like I think most people with a brain can can get to that, to that all by themselves. We don't need to be doing anything there. We have no conflict with any nation in Africa. We don't need to be doing it, but we're doing it anyway. And there's a million other things we're doing that are completely. Like there's like pure debauchery going on in the school system, right? And I'm not a prude. I don't want to tell anybody else how to live. But when you start having full on debauchery that involves children that are in like kindergarten, first, second grade, and some of this stuff is whether you believe it or not. I don't not I don't mean you personally. I mean anybody listening, whether you believe it or not, it is. And I see a lot of things going back to Rome where that same type of thing occurred. And again, I think for people to get some time context. It didn't like all that stuff happened, and then the next day there was no Rome. That's not how that happened at all. Yeah, a, a decline usually goes on for multiple generations, um, in some cases for multiple centuries. I think that the, a multi-century decline is less likely to date because I think that the speed of things, communication and transportation, means that things tend to happen quicker. So like, if you look at the decline and fall of the Soviet Union, um, like the real you know, dramatic period when it really started to fall apart was just a handful of years. Um, now, you know, an historian can look back and trace the roots of that decline way back. Um, like I was saying, but you know, it's like that, that, um, Oh, what's, what's the quote? Um, it happens slowly at first and then all at once kind of a yeah. thing yeah. where, you know, it, it's that it goes parabolic, um, in a downward way, the, the collapse, and I think it tends to happen quicker just because everything happens quicker. I mean, imagine, you know, in an empire where communication can only go as fast as a dude on a horse on a cobblestone road or a sailboat, you know, can go. It's like everything is going to be slower um, in, in how it unfolds. You know, um, a British colony in America might send a message back to London to ask a question about something and may not hear back for five months. And so you know, just everything goes slow, but now everything goes fast. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, to your, uh, your point a moment ago, I mean, I could, I could go off on a rant all day long about the, um, the boomers of the political class and I'm, I'm sure you probably could too, yeah. but it, it, think about, think about them in particular as a generation, especially considering the fact that most of the politicians who are boomers came from pretty in the real sense of the word privileged, affluent backgrounds, right? Um, imagine you're, you're born into a fairly affluent, privileged family. Um, in the 15 years or so, right in the aftermath of World War II. Like, everything seems great. You can take the world for granted. It's a time period when, um, you know, most institutions in this country were lavishing more resources on the young than on the old. It's the opposite of today. And um, it is a time period when, you know, things, at least on the surface, seemed very stable and everything seemed good. And, you know, the economy was booming for most of that time period. And, you know, the American dream seemed closer to reality than it ever really has, where a, a guy with a high school diploma um, could go get a decent job and raise an entire family on one income, um, you know, working in a factory or whatever like that. And it seemed like American power was just, you know, a force of nature. And so, yeah, you you get this um, the hubris, this arrogance um, on the part of that generation in particular, I, I think um, us Gen Xers, we d we don't tend to be as prone to that ridiculous level of arrogance 
boomers, particularly political class, uh, tend yeah. to be to be prone to. I mean, just imagine the arrogance to think that it's a good idea to simultaneously, um, you know, rattle your sabers against two nuclear powers at once. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's insane. It, 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 yeah, it, 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 it makes no sense. And there's I don't understand what the upside is. Honestly, other than there like the short term of, yeah, there making a few a extra dollars for your Raytheon uh, uh, donors, you know. Yeah. But beyond that, I, I don't see how any of it makes sense. Yeah, I, I I do like the analogy again to the you know fourth fifth generational wealth. There's a family that pretty much built Fort Worth. Like every third building is part of their empire called the Bass family. There's even a great big music hall called Bass Hall, and the woman that's finally inherited it is not just like fourth off, fifth off now from the original Bass family. She's also like a, like the distance of the core family has drifted. She's like, you know, a cousin or something, you know, and she's destroying everything that they built out of wokeism. Like there's a restaurant called Riyadh. It's a big, beautiful restaurant. I think she's vegan or something. So, she won't even talk to them about renewing their lease. And this is a sizable piece of real estate in the middle of downtown Fort Worth. Nobody else is going to rent this building, right? And this this is a company that's paid their bills, been there since uh, about 2002 when they had to move after the tornado tore up one of the buildings down there. Never missed a payment. They won't. They can't even get an answer. And the arrogance of something like that, it seems small. And it is small potatoes compared to like, thumbing your nose at two nuclear powers but it's the same pattern it's i am a bass and this is mine and i'm entitled to run it however i want you may be but your decisions have consequences and when you have a massive building with a huge tax bill sitting empty you're going to start having a problem and like you said that same empire things like that like if they lost a tenant like that 20 years ago ah. But once you start to weaken everywhere, those things then start to compound like like an illness in a sick person. Yeah. You know, what you were just saying made me think of um, another uh, interesting parallel case, which is um, what so many entertainment companies, especially Disney, are doing right now where they're they're taking like literally every beloved franchise and IP from the last 50 years and destroying them and they they have they have no capability to actually create anything new they can't actually create a new star wars or a new indiana jones or a new marvel um and so instead what they do is they take over these these things they have no understanding of what made these things work and what made these things so beloved in the first place and they have the arrogance to think that like no 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 no, i can take tolkien and just make it into my own little woke propaganda uh festival it's like and then they're, they're, they're surprised that people who, you know, the countless millions of Tolkien fans around the world are offended and disgusted um, by what they're doing or, you know, Star Wars fans with, with Disney Star Wars. It's, it's a very similar dynamic, this, you know, this arrogance of thinking um, that you can just take over these things that have worked and do whatever you want with them and um, but but have no capability of creating anything yourself. Yeah, like you said, when the, the Empire Builders may be nasty, corrupt people, but either they are competent or they don't build an empire, right? So, like, a person can become wealthy being very uh, very uh, beneficial to others, very benign to others, very uh, very generous, or a person be- can become wealthy being a, a, an arrogant, 
greedy, evil bastard. You know, both of those formulas can work toward the acquisition of wealth. What doesn't work is incompetence, right? You don't be incompetent and acquire wealth unless you inherit it. And you don't gather power from incompetence unless you inherit it. And I think that's what we have is an inheritance. And with that inheritance comes the smugness. And, and so that leads me to my next question. When you look at every empire that fell, you say to yourself, self, I could go back. And if they gave me control and I didn't let these 10 things happen, it didn't have to happen. This empire could have continued. But you, we don't have time machines. History is the closest thing we actually have as far as going backwards. Do all empires eventually have to fail? Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, I believe that those two ultimate causes that I went over before are in, in the same way that an individual human being can never live forever, right? Now, you know, if you're, if you're really uh, prudent and really take care of your health and all that, and you're also lucky and, you know, don't have any random accidents, like, yeah, you can live longer than someone else who's chain smoking, you know, two packs a day or somebody sure. who's like constantly, you know, base jumping or whatever like that. But, um, it's, it's not like you can, you can avoid, uh, the, the effects of these things forever. And as evidence, I would say that every, literally every empire that has ever existed has eventually experienced some sort of a, a decline and fall or collapse or whatever like that. Um, so, you know, I've already shown my cards that I believe the U S is an empire. So sure. I suppose someone could say like, well, Team America hasn't declined in failure. yet. Well, I'd say we're declining pretty good. Um, and, you know, I, th I think there's uh, – I, I, don't, I don't mindlessly believe in American exceptionalism strongly sure. enough to yeah. say that, oh, yes, we are going to be the one magical empire that yeah. is magically immune to all of the, you know, patterns of history and all of the laws of economics and – you know, human psychology and all that, like we're the magical exception. Like, oh, if you just believe strong enough in America, water will flow up uphill here. You know, yeah. I just don't believe that. You know, I think that the other thing that confuses people about this, and, and I agree with you, there are, if there was an empire that lasts forever, we'd be able to look at it and go, there it is, right? And we don't. But people have this idea of conflating geography with empires. So they'll look at China and say, well, China's thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, but China ha is a is a story of continuous rise of empire and fall and rise of mm -hmm. empire and fall. And the China of today is not even the China of a hundred years ago, let alone a thousand years ago. And if you go through any millennia in China, you'll see a rise of an empire and a fall. And I think part of that is because unless things really change, like when airplanes come, that changes exactly how valuable an ocean port is, but it's still valuable. But it's not as valuable as it was before there was an airplane. So certain things in time with technology change. But in the end, a geography that is well positioned and heavy with resources, of course, something's going to be there. So when we say the American empire will fail, that doesn't mean there won't be anything where Texas is. It doesn't mean there won't be any people here that will all just be gone unless the aliens come and vaporize us or something. There'll be somebody here. There'll be something here. And eventually there will be in an area with the level of resource uh, intensiveness that the United States has, there will be something that will be powerful. Maybe it's not a new empire, but there'll be something there. And it might even be called America, but it doesn't mean that the current empire stuck around. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there have been lots of um, empires in history where 
like, for example, we refer to the Persian Empire, but there wasn't one Persian Empire continuously for like 700 years or whatever. It was, you know, multiple dynasties. So one dynasty would take over in Persia and rule for a while. Then it would, you know, collapse or, or be invaded by by another empire or whatever. And then eventually a new Persian uh, dynasty might take over a lot of the same area, but it's not the same, you know, even the, the borders might not be exactly the same and it's not the same, you know, system. Um, the same government and, you know, you see the same thing about Russia um, over the centuries. So yeah, it doesn't mean that suddenly there's a black hole um, on the map where this thing used to be or that it's suddenly uh, empty or whatever. Um, But, you know, speaking of the empire, like as the system itself, right? So, you know, the Soviet union has been gone for 30 years, but there's still something called Russia Yeah, and there's, and there's still the components of it, right? There's, there's still, you know, um, Latvia and, and Lithuania and Ukraine, and there's still uh, what used to be the informal uh, Soviet possessions. Like there's still something called Poland, and there's still something called Hungary or whatever. Yeah, yeah, but there's no Austro Austro Hungary Hungarian Empire anymore, right? Right. Like, that's another empire. They're like right in that whole space, and I think we also live in this world. Younger people, especially, I don't think have seen the map change. Like you and I are old enough. Like I remember I joined the army and I was only army about three years. And when I came home, the globe was different. Like it was weird to like the first Olympics I watched after I got out of the military. And like, you know, they, you know, so-and-so is uh, performing on the parallel bars from Ukraine. What? Right. Germany, not East Germany and West Germany, Germany. Mm-hmm. Right. Those changes when you study them in a history book, impact your mind differently than when you grew up and there was a Soviet Union, there was an East and West Germany, and now there's all these satellite nations that are independent. Germany's reunified. Like, there's a Russia, but it's not the Soviet Union. Like, then I think you, when you see something that dramatic happen in the world, and it is dramatic, it's more dramatic in reality than it will ever be on a page in a story, right? Then you become cognizant of what we should all be cognizant of. All these lines that we have everywhere, they don't mean anything in reality other than the ability to defend them because they've all changed across time. I don't know if you I'm sure you have because it's just what you do. Somebody made a video and it was like Europe over like a 500 year period. And it just runs like there's no music or anything. It just runs. You just see all the borders change and you see like the, the, the Moorish empire come in and you see like this fall and then the Romans and like, it's, in, it, I think it's actually like a couple thousand years. It's insane. But we look at that map and we think, well, we have to make it stay that way. And I think that actually might be part of the problem. The belief that you can prevent that kind of change when history says it will occur or maybe not prevent it, but, It'll only change in the way that we want it to change. Like, that seems like a very much precipice of an empire thing that we will decide where other nations' borders are and what they're called. Like, that's that's just not something I think any nation has the power to do long term. Yeah, people tend to think that, you know, the world they're born into is is going to just sort of be permanent, and it never is. And just another example, imagine you were born in the U.K. in 1920. Um, you would grow up thinking that the British Empire is just the natural, inevitable superpower of the world. I mean, you would be born into a situation in which a quarter of all the dry land on Earth is ruled by the British Empire in one form or another. And, you know, the British Navy still ruled the waves. 
And you'd, you'd, you know, probably be taught in school, encouraged to think that, like, this is the natural order of things that's always going to be there. And yet, by the time you were 30 in 1950, the empire is falling apart really fast. You know, mm. India's gone, the centerpiece of the empire. Um, you know, most of the British control of the Middle East is pretty much done. And, um, and then, you know, by the time you're 40 in 1960, most of the British possessions in Africa and Asia elsewhere are either gone or are leaving. And, you know, Canada and Australia and whatever, still nominally part of the Commonwealth, but in reality, they're basically, you know, self-governing uh, independent states. So, yeah, I mean, just there's another ex example that's like at least as dramatic as the collapse of the Soviet Empire is just the British Empire falling apart after World War II. Yeah, I don't know if it was Canada or Australia. One of them basically just said, yeah, the Prince Charles on our money thing. We're not going to do that. Like we, we, we let the queen there. She's been around forever. We, I guess it's like a testament to uh, to respect or something. But like Charles is there, new money. Yeah, we're going to put a picture of a bird on it or something. <laughs> like we're just, not going to do that. And that, that makes me think like for people that want to get a really good view of what you were just talking about, there's a Netflix miniseries called The Crown. And it is a lot of the drama of the royal family and all that crap. But it's actually fascinating because it starts right at the end of World War II when Queen Elizabeth becomes queen at a very, very young age and basically really didn't want to do it, but did it out of a sense of duty. And so the background of the whole thing is the actual progression of history across that. And, you know, you can you can hate the royal family or whatever, but I, I do think like a person that lived that life for that long, the the historical perspective from that and watching basically an empire that she inherited fall apart ha had to be an amazing experience. Yeah. Well, the old saying was the sun never sets on the British empire, yeah. but eventually it, it did, now. you know? And it yeah. And now, right? and now it's like a handful of rocks, you know, it's a few of the Virgin islands, it's the Falklands, it's, you know, um, uh, the uh, Gibraltar, you know, um, this tiny little outpost on the coast of Spain and like, that's it, you know? In Northern Ireland. Wow. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the things that the elites do within these empires that maybe hasten or worsen this process? Like, what is the typical things that begin to, like, happen when an empire is kind of crested, it's reached its peak, but the people in charge maybe are not aware of this yet, and they, they, they continue to compound and make the problem worse? Yeah, I, I think that very often imperial elites, when their empire starts to really go into decline, they're sort of schizophrenic about it in terms of their own psychology, where like they never want to admit openly, publicly, that the empire's in decline, even if there's a lot of evidence. And they may not even want to consciously kind of acknowledge it to themselves. Um, but on some deep gut level, I think most of them... Uh, as incompetent as they may be, they're usually not like actually idiots. And so I, I think it's inevitable that most of the elites probably eventually get a sense that this thing is no longer, you know, working as smoothly uh, at doing what it does as it used to. And so, you know, one of the things that's sort of like a outgrowth of that complexity idea is that an empire that's around for any significant length of time is going to develop an establishment, for lack of a better term. It is going to develop like a class that, you know, kind of controls all the important institutions, the state, but, you know, maybe other institutions as well, right? So, you know, in the American case, the establishment would be high up people in the government and politicians, but it would also include, 
the corporate media, uh, corporate entertainment industry, you know, a whole, whole bunch of other institutions and industries that are not directly state, you know, big tech uh, is largely connected with the establishment as well. And so one effect of, of developing this sort of an establishment, um, this sort of enclosed little little class in an empire is that over time, the types of people that tend to rise to high positions in that system decline in quality because no longer, you know, is there a lot of opportunity for like rags to riches, you know, for just highly competent regular people to end up in a position of power and influence in the system. Uh, instead, it's, it's more to do with just going along, being a company man, uh, being a yes man, um, being skillful at corruption and uh, nepotism and, you know, not rocking the boat. And so, you know, in the case of the Soviet Union, I would say, look at uh, Leonid Brezhnev, right? One of the latter Soviet leaders, um, you know, and compare him to like Lenin or Stalin. Now, Lenin and Stalin were evil SOBs and really mm-hmm. were much more evil than Brezhnev. At the yeah. same time, though, they were more competent than him. Like they were right. more intelligent. They were better at getting done what they wanted to get done. Now, a lot of what they wanted to get done was hor- was just absolutely horrific. But, you know, then you look at Brezhnev and he's just like. He's he's old. He's corrupt. He's senile. He's surrounded by yes men who just tell him all day how great he is. And yet he's not able to do a whole heck of a lot, you know, to speak of uh, to turn around the empire's decline. And he probably didn't even understand it fully because he was surrounded by a bunch of yes men. And so, you know, you can make other comparisons of compare Joe Biden to Teddy Roosevelt. Like I'm against a lot of what Teddy Roosevelt did politically, but he's an impressive guy. Like he's obviously a very intelligent guy, you know, wrote books on varieties of subjects. Yeah. He was born into wealth, but he still, you know, made something of himself and wasn't just a, a random playboy. I think he'd be you know, an awesome guy if he never got into politics. Um, <laughs> most of the rest of his life, I think is great. Um, but, you know, just compare Teddy Roosevelt, right? Like Teddy Roosevelt got the Panama canal built and it got done early and under budget. You know, um, he did all kinds of stuff I don't agree with, but like he got stuff done and he was also like in his early 40s when he became president. You know, he's this vigorous guy out there wrestling people and, you know, hunting bears and stuff like this. And then you compare it to Joe Biden, you know, just nothing. Yeah, we've gotten to a point where I think that one of the things that I see that, that tells me we're in this pattern is that we don't value that in our leaders anymore. We don't value competence we don't value health. We don't value normal in our leadership anymore, right? Yep. And I think the other thing is, and I think this is very typical that, of what oligarchs and political leaders do. When you look at an empire being built in its early days, it's built on a unifying ideal and a unifying culture every single time. And so men are willing to spill their blood to preserve freedom, whatever that means, inside that empire to die for the country, to serve. And they will go out and they will lead and they will fight. And then most of your leaders in politics are from military circles. If they're going to send somebody out to bleed, they went out to bleed themselves. And if I know there's a few presidents up till Bush the first who, who ha- had not served in the military, but it's like that kind of started a, a, a thing lately where, yeah, Bush Jr. was in the National Guard and flew airplanes, but he avoided conflict and, and what have you. Clinton, no military service. If Gore had won, as far as I remember, no military service. He um, he was he was in the military during Vietnam, but he was oh. like made a, a military 
reporter or something. You know, he was okay. posted to something that was safe and not combat. Yeah, yeah. so he was like working for AFIs or some shit like that. Um, then Trump, no military service. Obama, no military service. Biden, no military service. So it's like there was this break point where up till that, I guess you could become president. There's nothing preventing you, but it was a hard row to to go to the American people and say, I want to be commander in chief of the United States Armed Services, and I've not served in any sort of, of capacity in the military. Um, Adams, I guess, never served in the military, second president, but so involved with the construction of the country, uh, foreign diplomat, like so involved with all of those things and certainly not exactly in a safe space <laughs> at the time. And going forward, you look and there's some le- or uh, Adams. Was, yeah, Adams was third. Jefferson, same, I guess. But still like right in like I think at that point, it's a little bit different. There was a point at which if you never served in the military, your political ambitions were pretty much lowered just by that. Maybe not prevented, but lowered. Yeah, and just in general, um, you know, look at how many of our current uh, group of of the highest level leaders in politics. I mean, how many of them are in their seventies or even eighties, right? Whether yeah. it's Biden, Pelosi, McConnell, any of these people. That's so and, ageist. You're such an ageist. You yeah, know? right. <laughs> and, and and not only that, because there are older people that I would love to have in power, like sure. Ron Paul. You know. Yeah. Um, but but these are people who. You know, it's not just that they're old, it's that they're just not impressive individuals in any way. They are people who, even setting aside the military, have accomplished, in most cases, little or nothing prior to becoming a politician. Many of them, like Joe Biden, have basically never had a real job um, other than being a politician and, you know, things like that. And so, you know, it's it's not even it's it's not even like these are you know, successful entrepreneurs or people who have been successful in other arenas of life and then went into politics out of a sense of duty or whatever like that. Yeah. It's these are just career people, um, very often from political families, you know, that sort of thing. So because they tend not to be super competent, most of the things that they'll often do in the face of imperial decline uh, will be things that make things worse, not better from the standpoint of keeping the system afloat and turning it around. So um, one of the things that declining the people running declining empires will often do is they'll often become this seems kind of counterintuitive, but it's very common. They'll become much more recklessly aggressive in their wars and foreign policy than they were um, than their ancestors were when the empire was actually stronger and on the rise. And so you see this. um, uh, There's an historian named Alfred McCoy who calls this micro militarism. Although I think that's a little bit misleading because some instances of these things get out of control and turn very, very macro. But um, just to give you an example, um, when the British Empire was in serious decline in the 1950s, the British uh, government, in collusion with the French and Israeli governments, launched the Suez uh, Canal crisis intervention, whatever you want to call it. And it was it was a disaster. It backfired and it actually, you know, sped up British and French loss of influence and control in the Middle East. And in hindsight, it was strategically a stupid idea. I won't go through the details here because of time, but anybody who's not familiar with it can look up the Suez crisis. I think it was 1956. Um, You can also uh, argue that the Russian invasion of Afghanistan in 1980 uh, was an example of this sort of thing where the the Soviets are in serious decline. um, And yet they launched this dumb war in Afghanistan with like really no upside. And so in uh, declining empires tend to go to war more frequently. They tend to go to war for stupider reasons. 
They tend to get into fights where there's less upside, even if they win. They tend to get into fights where even if you do win, it's like a Pyrrhic victory, right? Like another example of that would be the British with the Boer War in South Africa at the turn of the last century. You know, the British ultimately won that war, but they had to send like, I forget, half a million troops from around the empire to get it done against like 50,000 Dutch farmers with rifles. And it cost them dearly. And at the end of it, the, the Boers actually kind of won the peace because even though they're like, okay, we're under the Union Jack, in no time flat, the Boers were pretty much governing South Africa themselves, sort of the way like Canada and Australia and stuff did. So, you know, you look at the, the U.S.'s wars really since World War II. They're all stupid in, in, the, in the sense of like, what do you yeah. even get, right? Yeah. Like, the, the people who say that um, – you know, the, the Bush's wars in the Middle East were just about stealing their oil. In a way, I wish that was true because that would at least make we sense. We would have got right? some. Right? Yeah, we, got yeah. some. we didn't get yeah. anything. Yeah. Yeah. If we would have ended up with like 75 cent gas for years on end, I'd have been yeah. like, well, it's immoral, but at least I'm getting something from this. We're back to it might be immoral, but at least it's competent. Yeah, at least right. it's benefiting somebody other than, yeah, you know, like, the, the well, it benefited CEOs. Halliburton and, mm-hmm. and, and, and BlackRock and everybody else with contracts and stuff like that. But it yeah. didn't really benefit anybody here. If you yeah. look at like the, the, the first war, real war after World War II, even though we don't call it war, was the Korean conflict. And that was okay. We have this ally. They were invaded. We went in and pushed them back across the, the, the parallel. And then we fought for three more years to end up right where we were when we knocked them back. And we drew China into the war by pushing it up to the Yellow River. There was a lot of bravado and bullshit from the rah-rah, the incredible victory of World War II. And that made people, even at that time, in that short time period, less than 10 years really, forget, well, how much blood did that cost us? And how how important was it to actually fight that war? We actually had a global freaking problem, Right. The Korean conflict could have been ended in, a, in two weeks, and we would have been right back to where it is still today. But instead, we for, and then it just from there, it's a comedy of errors going forward with everything that we ever touched. Vietnam was, you know, 58,000, I think it is, men's name on the wall of the p- photograph that I have on my wall behind my fish tanks here on the other side of my office. For what? And the answer is nothing. You can make all the movies you want and call them heroes, and I'm not disparaging a single one of them the rest of their life, but we got nothing. What we, if anybody says otherwise, what did we get? Yeah, well, got even... some good Chuck Norris movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, um, imagine even in that scenario, imagine the United States, quote-unquote, won in Vietnam. What would that mean? Well, that would simply mean keeping a, um, a sock puppet corrupt regime in South Vietnam in place correct like whoop-de-doo you know like what does that do um i don't i don't understand what does that do for an average american uh in terms of their their prosperity their liberty um that you know protecting their freedoms or whatever like that so um so that that's a common thing that it, it seems like leaders of empires will sort of have it in their head that like oh i can just pick a fight with somebody and really smack the hell out of them real bad and flex my muscles and prove that my empire is still badass. Yeah. And in reality, um, it has the opposite effect. Cause like I said, even if you win one of these dumb wars, it doesn't actually make you stronger. It makes you weaker. And there's always the chance that you could pick a fight with the wrong person and lose. 
Um, and you know, I would point out, um, World War One is a is an excellent example of this stuff getting out of hand, where um, the Habsburg uh, Empire or uh, Empire um, of the Austrians, mm-hmm. the the Romanov dynasty of the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire ruling over the Middle East and North Africa, um, as as well as the the Hohenzollern, you know, German Kaiser dynasty, all of those empires were killed as things by World War One. They all went into it, all of them. Right now, the only one that wasn't probably in serious decline before World War One was the German Kaiserreich. They were not in decline, but clearly the Romanov Russian Empire was, the Ottoman Empire was, and the um, Habsburg Austro-Hungarian Empire. They were all in serious decline prior to World War One. And it seems to me, after reading a lot into World War One over many years, that the leaders of those empires they went into World War One, what would become World War One, with this idea of like. Oh, I'll prove everyone else wrong. Everybody yeah. who says that the Habsburg Empire is the sick man of Europe, ha ha, yeah. jokes on them. We're going to go kick the crap out of Serbia and prove we still got our mojo. And it's like, you know, an over the hill, um, you know, former heavyweight champion deciding that he's going to go, you know, at age 50, take on the, the yeah. new young buck. And like every now and then there's a freak like George Foreman who might pull it off, but yeah. it ain't going to work most of the time. <laughs> and that was done with a lot of training and, a lot of strategy and, and he, he did do that, but he didn't stick around for much longer after he did it either. Right. Like, um, it wasn't like, you know, let's say Mike Tyson coming back and going, I don't watch boxing. So whoever the current champion is like when he's in his prime, Tyson was one of the greatest boxers of all time. He's probably, he's going to kick my ass right now, but he's probably not going to beat the the new up and coming guy that is training every single friggin' day. Um, and that's why he's retired. He's smart enough to know that, right? Like, Athletes actually figure this out because it starts to hurt. But the problem with empire is the stupid doesn't hurt the person who's stupid. It hurts other people. So like pain is a natural feedback. You do a thing, it causes you pain and there's no gain because of that pain. You stop doing it. Right. But when you can do stupid and it hurts others, then unless you're a compassionate individual and politicians sell them are, you don't care. You care about what you get. It's not your pain. It's not your problem until it is when you lose everything. And, and that eventually mm-hmm. happens. Um, and also, you know, this whole win, well, is win good? So when you were talking about that, well, what happens if we had won in Vietnam and we had kept South Vietnam in place? People would think, well, that would have been better. Would it? What would the world be like today with the North and South Vietnam and all the other shit that's going on? In the Far East, would that really be better? I I don't know if you ever watched the miniseries. It was called I think whatever the date of Kennedy's assassination was eleven twenty two sixty three based on oh the book. yeah based on the Stephen King book yeah right yeah and it's an alternate reality and this they can go back in time but they come to the same place every time and if they go back to the future everything that they did happened and changed the future and they go back through for a half a second come back it's the way it was before they did it right for the people that haven't seen it. And so this guy goes on this compulsion to stop the Kennedy assassination and he tries over and over to do it. And he finally does it. And then when he comes back and expects the world to be a better place, because nobody ever assassinated Kennedy, he's in new England or something like that. When he comes back and like the whole town's wiped out, and there was a global nuclear war. Right. And I think McGovern got elected instead of Nixon or something. And like, and who knows what would have happened, but the, the whole idea is just because we won doesn't mean we'd be better off. In fact, it could be a far more precarious situation because you know what nobody's worried about right now? Vietnam. 
Vietnam is causing nobody any trouble at all anywhere in the world. Like that was the whole the whole concept was if Vietnam goes, the whole thing will fall down. Vietnam is a peaceful country that we have great relationships with today. Yeah, that American tourists can travel to and you know yeah. have a great time. And um, by the way, the domino theory is that was you know used as the excuse for Vietnam is also currently being used by many pro you know Ukraine. Yeah, uh, people, they're yeah. saying the domino. They're like, oh, well, if Russia takes over Ukraine, why yeah. in a matter of time, they'll be taking over France and the UK. It's the same exact argument that was proven to be complete BS in regard to Vietnam, where they were like, oh, if Vietnam falls, then goes the entire yeah. Southeast Asia. Next thing you know, there'll be commies in Australia. Yeah. And next thing yeah. you know, there'll be commies in California, as if there already weren't. They weren't already here, right? The, the, the commies are in the colleges. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the call is well, coming from right? inside the house. And the whole thing with the, the Ukraine thing is the entire argument presupposes that Vladimir Putin's goal is to take over Ukraine instead of the Donbass territories. Right. Like right. Th that's actually the goal. And I'm not defending either side in this, but I am saying that we might have a different opinion about this. If there was a continuous conflict on one of our borders with a former territory of ours that was causing us problems, if this conflict that's been because people don't get this, I think, CJ, but they don't know modern history, let alone ancient history. Right. The, the war that's going on there is about nine years old now. It went on for eight years before this part of it happened. And it's a, an internal civil conflict. So imagine uh, the drug cartels actually being the Mexican government and having a couple provinces of Mexico on the border with Texas and Arizona in a conflict with the rest of Mexico and spilling over our border, and it's going on continuously. We might decide we wanted to do something about that. But no, we like to, we probably would, and we like to start fights, you know, halfway around the world. But you can understand where Russia might just have an interest in what's going on there, because it is on their freaking border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, in, in addition to empires... um tending to lash out more aggressively and recklessly when they're in decline. Um, there's a bunch of other things that are extremely common um, that happen. One is increased authoritarianism at home. And so this is when like the chickens come home to roost as far as the, like the old saying, the empire always comes home, right? So, so typically the way empires operate, they're more authoritarian the further out in the periphery you get mm. right. And so, you know, the U.S., for example, when it took over the Philippines 120 years ago, the U.S. did authoritarian things in, in the Philippines to take it over that they would never at that time have tried here right at home. And yet within a few decades, guess what? A lot of those authoritarian type things are coming home. Same thing happened in Vietnam. Same thing happened in, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. The, the U.S., uh, forces did things that would never be considered okay to do at home uh, in terms of, you know, authoritarian measures and things. And yet what always inevitably happens is those things start to filter home one way or another. And so you see this even in the case of, um, of the UK, which, you know, was one of the freest countries in the world for, for a fair chunk of modern history. And it is during and in the aftermath of world war one that the UK starts to become more authoritarian, even at home. Um, it's during World War One that the UK uh, passes the Defense of the Realm Act, which is a very authoritarian measure, starts to set up a domestic uh, surveillance system, you know, a domestic uh, series of 
um, surveillance agencies and whatever. And it's also in the immediate aftermath of World War One, when the British Empire, I would argue, is in, starting to be in serious decline, that the UK passes its first kind of draconian gun control laws as well, mm-hmm. which is interesting. So you, you typically get ever more authoritarian measures at home. Um, trying to deal with the symptoms of the decline rather than address the cause. And you also simultaneously will very often get an increase in welfare state programs at home designed to keep the masses, you know, docile and compliant um, and, you know, not be too rebellious. Of course, the problem then is you're fighting more stupid, unnecessary wars than before, and you're ramping up your... um you know, your welfare state programs, well, how are you paying for that? Well, taxes will typically get jacked up in late imperialism, but usually there's a limit to what you can do even as far as that goes. Mm. Uh, and so guess what you typically end up getting eventually is uh, inflation. Eventually, and, and the Romans, as far as I know, were the first big empire, at least that I'm aware of, that yeah. that figured out this trick where they didn't have paper money yet in in Europe, but the Romans started to dilute the silver content of their coinage in order to increase the money supply so that they keep spending on wars and building palaces and bread and circuses without jacking up taxes anymore because they've kind of reached the limit of what they could do there. And so taxes are a self-limiting thing. You tax to a certain point and then your tax revenues go down because your productivity goes down when you tax it too hard. So taxes to a degree are self-correcting. Unless you can come up with an inflation tax, like you're saying, if you can suck existing value out of the money so people don't see it, you can forestall that and 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 keep that those plates spinning a little bit longer. But sooner or later, they're going to fall anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the basic laws of economics haven't changed from the Roman Empire to today. So yeah, you can increase the money supply, and in the short run, that kind of works to keep the system going. But you know, it's inevitable that you're going to end up. Um, with price inflation as the the inevitable consequence of that. And so then you're going to tend to get things like um, uh, price controls. Very often the government will respond, again, not dealing with the root cause of the price inflation, but trying to treat the symptoms. Price controls, the Romans did that under Diocletian in the third century. And then guess what? When the government institutes price controls, you end up with all kinds of shortages of mm. lots of commodities. And so then you get, you know, black market activity and whatever. And then the government responds not by freeing up the market usually, um, but by getting more authoritarian on the economy. And so, oh my gosh, there's shortages. Um, it's not our fault. It's because of those greedy farmers are hoarding their produce or whatever. And so then you get things um, like maybe rationing. You get things like quote unquote anti hoarding laws. And so basically you get into this downward spiral of ever increasing state intervention into the economy. Uh, each each intervention creates additional problems, and the state usually responds with more interventions that create more problems. So that's usually kind of the downward spiral of an imperial economy as mm. it becomes. And and you know the the economy of different empires starts off from a different place. You know, so like the British imperial economy was relatively free market as empires go, and mm-hmm. so it took a lot longer for their their imperial economy to fall apart than say the soviets who you know were starting off with marxist economics which are inherently um less you know productive and and resilient than um like a british relatively free market system so it can take more or less time but that's the general pattern that tends to play out most of the time yeah people that are around today that are pro-communism or whatever that are young i don't think they remember because they weren't born yet 
But like in the eighties, if you needed something done in, in, in Russia, you could go over there with one pair of Levi's jeans and you had currency, bro. A pack of Marlboro cigarettes, you had currency because this giant, huge empire couldn't manufacture jeans. Right? They couldn't they couldn't come up with a, a reasonable supply of cigarettes. Not that you need cigarettes, but I'm just kind of making a point. Those were two of the highest pieces of currency in the Soviet Union about let's say 1985 and we we all should know it wasn't much longer after 1985 there was no more USSR that it went away and it went it's like you said gradually then suddenly I think Ernest Hemingway was the source of that quote uh it looks very like it's doing fine it's doing fine and boom and it's gone but it's not there is a very distinctive pattern and I think one of the patterns is what people within the empire begin to experience. Can you kind of talk about that? Like, what's it like for the subject of the empire when an empire is falling apart right in front of them? Sure, yeah. So um, there is often a noticeable to sometimes catastrophic drop in standard of living. And hmm. again, this is you know worse in some empires than others. Um, the British domestic population experienced some economic uh, difficulties – Basically, from the end of World War II uh, through the 1970s, they they had a, several periods of pretty bad economic times during that period. It never got to the you know level uh, that it did in Russia in the aftermath uh, or during the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but yeah, there's you know a whole bunch of symptoms that come from this, like uh, infrastructure declines, um, the economy continues to decline, and just in general be unstable. Uh, politics tends to get more and more unstable because people are just sort of psychologically responding to just the seemingly ne never ending series of crises. You know, it's just, just think about what we've had to deal with, um, the last three years, right? As far as just like one constant seeming crisis, real or imagined after another. Um, another thing that often happens is even if an empire is oppressive, it usually, at least when it's relatively healthy and, and strong as a system, it usually is providing at least some useful services, like, for example, building and maintaining infrastructure, uh, providing basic security, right? Like the, the, the Roman Navy, you know, kept uh, pirates from getting too out of hand in the Mediterranean, things like mm -hmm. that, right? The, the British Navy, um, you know, did provide freedom of the seas for much of the for a long time. When the empire is apart, a lot of times that goes away. And though now it's like simultaneously the imperial government is being more authoritarian to its overall population, and yet it's being less and less willing and able to do things like provide basic security. And so you can end up in a situation that um, – I forget who coined this, this phrase first, but this idea of anarcho-tyranny, which is like the worst of both worlds. So mm -hmm. in anarcho-tyranny, the state is badly squeezing and exploiting and oppressing just sort of like regular people. And at the same time, it's unwilling or unable or both to provide those regular citizens with basic things like security. So yeah, the government's going to squeeze I, you for every dime you got, but not protect you from bandits. I describe you know? that as when we get to the point where the police can do nothing for you, but they can do something to you. And that's that's becoming yeah. the case in like the worst outlying parts right now, like San Francisco and Portland and Seattle, like – they won't get rid of the guy taking a deuce on the front of your business steps. But if you yep. do anything yourself to stop that, they come arrest you. Exactly. They won't do anything about the 20 dudes in mass that come in and completely ransack a jewelry store. 
But if the owner of the jewelry store takes a freaking Louisville slugger to one of their heads, they throw him in the clink. Right. Mm-hmm. That's that's uh, to me one of the telltale signs that we are in a bad place as far as empires go. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And there's there's uh, typically a significant spike in like independence movements and independence wars and civil wars mm-hmm. and things in a declining empire because people can kind of sense that there's maybe an opportunity. Right. So, you know, like Ireland rose up in not its first revolt, but it's it's, you know, um the one that was finally successful in 1921 uh, and you know their previous attempts at rebellion had just been squashed by the british and yet yeah. they were able to in the early 1920s finally pull it off uh, india was able to get its independence you know through primarily nonviolent means but same deal like they kind of realized in the aftermath of world war 2 like yeah the british empire is no longer the yeah. powerful entity it is this might be our opportunity to leave or like what happened in you know, Poland and Czechoslovakia in the 1980s. You know, people can kind of tell when the empire is, um, you know, losing its mojo. Um, so, yeah, there's there's uh, in in general um, instability. Then there's the issue of paying for all of the stupid uh, little wars of imperial decline that the elites are probably going to be engaging in. Um, in general. Um, there's going to be increased likelihood of barbarian invasion in one way or another. And it could be as simple as just a state that no longer is willing and able to uh, secure its borders. And so an interesting example of this that has some arguable parallel to what is happening now is um, when, when the Goths, I think it was the Visigoths first kind of came into Roman territory in, um, in the fourth century AD, the Goths initially came into Roman territory as like refugees and they were fleeing scarier barbarians to the east of them. Okay. And so they showed up on Rome's borders and Rome like no longer had the power to really keep them out because there were so many of them. There were the and moderate so, rebels. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so the, the Romans like felt like they had no choice to like make a deal. They're like, okay, uh, you guys can sort of settle in our territory, but um, you know, you got to be subject to us and some of you got to serve in our army or whatever. And anyway, eventually, the Romans mistreated these Visigoth uh, refugees so badly that they rose up in rebellion against Rome and actually beat Rome. And um, Mm. I'm trying to remember, I think it was the Battle of Adrianople or something like this. It shocked the world because these barbarian Visigoths like wiped out a major Roman uh, military force and I think even killed killed the emperor at the time. And so, you know, that's just another example of like they can't control things. Um, And then one more thing I want to make sure to mention about what regular people might experience. And I think we've already alluded to this a little bit in, in different places is that um, the culture changes and one major component of the, of the culture changing, I believe is time preference that people start to become uh, more high time preference. So they care more about instant gratification than about what's doing, what's the right thing to do for the long term. And I think this is, this is encouraged by the fact that the economy is declining, inflation is happening, all that stuff. You know, if you kind of realize like, oh, shit's sort of falling apart around here. Well, then if you get some money, it's like, hey, let me spend it on something that'll bring me pleasure and fun right now uh, because my money will be worth less tomorrow and the whole friggin economy might fall off a cliff next week. Um, and so, you know, this then has spillover effects into other cultural matters. You see, you know, um, very often things like uh, out of wedlock childbirth start to go up. Yeah. Um, addiction problems start to increase. 
again, this is all symptoms of high time. You have an entire generation of your next group of leaders that are early 20 somethings, late teens that are going to be the people coming into their real stride in the next 10 years with an anacronym YOLO. Right. Like you literally have a generation that's like their trademark. YOLO, man, YOLO. I get the mindset of the youth to a degree, but when it's actually ingrained like that, it's very dangerous for your future because those people don't really see themselves as having a place at the table, but they're going to run the table in 10 years. It's just the case. People in their 30s and 40s run most shit. They may not run Congress, but they run most of the shit they do. And they, they probably should. You've got enough experience to be good, and you've got enough energy to still be effective, right? So that it's probably the age demographic that should be just based on human life cycles in charge of stuff. But if they're coming up with an attitude of screw it, then when they take over, they're going to keep at least some portion of that attitude. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Oh, and um, one other cultural thing that happens very often, not always, but seems to happen pretty frequently, and this was first kind of pointed out by um, Camille Paglia in one of her books, is that declining empires often become obsessed with, like, gender and with with like upending and reversing and attacking previous sort of gender roles and gender norms. And so you see this in like the real kind of decadent phases of the Roman empire. You see this in some of the, um, of some of the European empires in like the early 20th century in the 1920s and thirties. Um, and I, I think, I think her argument is that, it sort of feels to everybody psychologically like all the traditions and institutions are just falling apart. Everything that you used to know is being transgressed on and overthrown. And so then this, one of the ways this can manifest itself is like suddenly people are, you know, saying there's 47 genders and, (laughs) um, you know, making up new pronouns that didn't even exist a few years ago. And, you know, it is interesting to think about that as an aspect of it too. And, um, yeah. You know, is is this like a coping mechanism? Like you, you're having trouble coming to grips with what's really happening uh, to your system and your society. And so, you know, what a great distraction to suddenly get into arguments about whether there's 60 genders or 70. Well, I think that's another hallmark. And that's just one example of it that I, I said this earlier in the building phase of an empire. A nation is united under a common ideal as you get into this inherited empire and these people want to maintain control, they no longer see more empire as the solution to their problems. Like, there's a certain way we've kind of grown for like half the world, the sun doesn't set. Like, how much more can we get out of this? What's the diminishing point of returns? So then they start to see to trying to maintain their power. And they don't see the the barbarians well outside the gate as a threat to their power. We can smite them anytime we want from the sky or whatever, right? It, they start to see their people that are closest to them is a threat, and, and it may be the case. And then the more they piss those people off, the more that heat builds up and the more potential there is for popular uprisings and things like that. But instead of understanding, hey, maybe we need to see the business right here at home, instead they keep screwing around out here, and then they tighten down further and further and further. And I think what happens is people get to a point where they're like, you know what, fuck it. And I think one of the other hallmarks is where people just begin to not worry about what the state wants anymore. And so you have a lot of lawlessness, but not necessarily violence, 
that that's a different thing that comes to. But what I'm what I'm talking about isn't the violence. I mean, you know what? I'm just going to do what I want. And there's no longer this common ideal that I'm doing my thing as an American for America or as a Roman for Rome. I'm doing my thing for me. And in many instances of it, it's not selfish. It just makes sense. Like, clearly, there's nothing here for me. Right. The the cops aren't going to help me, but they will hurt me. Right. What do I get out of this? And people start to say, well, if I'm not going to get anything out of this, I'm going to go my own way. And I think the other side of it, too, though, is then people start to think, well, it'll be good when the empire breaks up because I don't like this empire. Uh, It depends. Right. Like they can be really bad. Maybe you create a vacuum and the next you know, what revolutions tend to not. We have this very uh, romantic idea of revolution in America because it kind of worked out. Revolutions tend to not, as you know, as a student of history, a, a teacher of history, don't typically work out well for for the place that they happen. Uh, or you get a foreign power taking uh, control or like your life doesn't really change maybe that much. Like if you look at um, England, right, the British Empire, for the average Britain that lives in Britain proper, they still had all the problems after the empire was gone. In fact, maybe more. Yeah, that's, you know, an important thing to keep in mind is that even an empire that's, you know, oppressive and whatever, if it falls apart, that's no guarantee that in a timely fashion, something better is immediately going to take its place. And so, you know, what I would say is that the bigger and more complicated an empire is, the more there's going to be variability between how the different parts of the empire fare in the during and after the collapse um, that there's going to be some places that do relatively well and there's going to be other places that do relatively worse. And um, often the places that do better are the places that were more kind of fringe periphery of the empire. Um, yeah. And then the places that do worse are like closer to the heart of, of the kind of center um, that that's actually a common thing that happens. So if you look at say the Soviet empire collapse, Russia actually did worse than most, if not all, of the Warsaw Pact satellite states. Like, you know, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, whatever, they transitioned to post-communism and started to become, you know, relatively uh, prosperous uh, first world nations relatively quickly. I mean, they had had their problems for sure. Uh, But like if you go to the Czech Republic today, like it is a prosperous, you know, first world country. Uh, Russia experienced over a decade of like economic collapse, hyperinflation, you know, huge amounts of crime in the in the 90s, um, corruption like just through the roof. And they've, you know, made somewhat of a comeback in that stuff under Putin, which is part of why he's popular uh, with a lot of the people there, because what was what was before Putin was so horrible. Um, but even so, like, you know, Russia is not as prosperous of a country per capita right now as like the Czech Republic is. So and the same thing um, with the British Empire when it falls apart, like every place does differently. So, um, you know, Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand, you know, they they had already had a fair amount of self-government under the empire. So when the empire fell apart, it wasn't catastrophic for them they were already fairly self-sufficient in most things that they were doing and so today all of those you know form what used to be called dominions like canada australia uh new zealand they all pretty much have either the same or even higher 
standard of living per capita than the UK does right now. So you could argue that they actually did better with the British Empire basically not being in reality a thing anymore. Um, but certainly there's there's lots of other parts of the world that were under the British Empire that when the Brits left, it got worse uh, for the people who actually live there. You know, many of uh, particularly the poorer parts of the empire in Africa and South Asia and whatever, you know, the Brits leave and, you know, a local dictator takes over or there's a nasty civil war or whatever like that. Um, so, yeah, it's messy. So, you know, if if the American empire does fall into pieces, which is just one you know, potential outcome of an imperial collapse, but if that's if that's what happens, keep in mind, it's not going to be the same everywhere. Um, in, in every, you know, state or region or whatever like that. There's going to be some places that'll probably do all right, may even do better relatively quickly. Um, but, you know, there's probably going to be at least some places where things get much worse. And, you know, if it does get better, it's not going to be for a long time. Yeah. And I think there is something to the idea that there's a lot of people that think they will benefit that won't, that people don't realize how dependent they are on the empire, right? Like, they're, they're, they're imperial citizens, whether they, they like it or not. Their job is tied directly to government, for instance, or maybe some agreement that we have with another nation that goes away if we're not an empire anymore is actually somewhere downstream. Very important to them. Some sort of, you know, maybe they're not importing a thing, but the thing's being imported three levels down the supply chain and they're unaware of it. Um, I remember when the aluminum tariff stuff hit and people were like, ah, it's no big deal. It's going to make a beer can cost a penny more to manufacture or something. Uh, but as soon as I talked to somebody in the construction industry, said, yeah, you know, uh, a lot of bids we had out since we're talking about millions of tons to build these facilities, this actually matters. And so I think there's a lot of those cascading effects that can come through. And I think the other thing is, what's the timeline look like? Like, how long does it take for that empire to fully go away? Like you said, it kind of reaches a parabolic and goes over, but you don't know where that point is until it comes. Like there's, there's a lot of time in between. And there was, you know, Rome, again, there was two Roman empires for a while. That's something else I think we we teach kids, but they don't remember it because of the way we teach them in school is, I don't know, they're more worried about what gender they, they should pick or something now. Oh, yeah. And the Eastern Roman Empire lasted for like another thousand years almost after the Western Empire collapsed. And as far as they were concerned, like we we call them, you know, the Byzantine Empire or something like that to differentiate them from the Western Roman Empire. But as far as the people living in the Byzantine Empire during that thousand years, they thought of themselves as Romans. They're just like, yeah, we're we're, we're the Romans, you know. Um, so, yeah. And and by the way, it's I, I don't think it's the only reason that the Eastern Empire survived a lot longer. But I think one contributing factor is actually that when the Western Empire was debasing its currency, the Eastern Empire didn't. The Eastern Empire stayed on like a hard money standard. Um, and again, I'm not saying that's like the one only thing that caused them to last a lot longer, but I think it was a contributing factor because, you know, for sure, if your economy is healthier and has a better currency, that's going to tend to make you more resilient uh, than a place that's experiencing hyperinflation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what do you think life would be like in the aftermath of a U.S. empire? Collapse because I, I think we're in agreement that maybe we maybe we see it maybe we don't but I think it's an eventuality that we will see what what does life post empire look like for the average person in the United States? Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of potential directions that it could go. Um, 
a lot of people are going to suffer hard times in various ways. I think no matter how it plays out, there's there's going to be suffering and hardship. Um, maybe not amongst everybody, but amongst some significant percentage of the people currently, you know, living in the United States. Um, the best case scenario, in my opinion, would be to have um, leaders come into power. Now, this might sound ridiculously far fetched, but again, this is my best case scenario. Uh, have have leaders come into power who acknowledge that the empire is declining okay. and who kind of say, like, look, it's far too late to fix this plane. This plane is going down. Instead of pretending like it's fine and keep on flying, the best thing we can do is to try and crash as you know best as we can. Right. Try to minimize uh, the damage. And, you know, the British, for all their faults, probably are the best example in history of an imperial power kind of doing that kind of realizing like uh yeah we can't keep doing this let's try and make the collapse as relatively orderly as possible and i'm not saying that they always did a great job but compared to most empires um they they manage decline and fall more gracefully than others um and you know if the u.s uh, were to break up into multiple pieces you know, there are people who say like, "Oh, we can't do that because inevitably there'd be a civil war." It's like there's nothing inevitable about civil war uh, when an, when a larger nation or empire breaks up into smaller pieces. It does not have to be violent. It often is, but that's because of the choices made by the people that are involved. The Soviet um, Union was a perfect example. It there was not a war, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of that honestly comes down to the. Um, the character of Gorbachev as a leader that yeah. Gorbachev refused to try and use brute force to hold the thing together. And so it, you know, was mostly peaceful in the dissolution. And there are lots of other examples throughout history of, of nations or empires peacefully, you know, separating from each other. Right. Uh, I think it was Norway and Sweden used to be one thing. And yeah. then they just kind of, you know, had a vote and a referendum or whatever. Like, all right, let's be two separate countries. And like, nobody got hurt. Um, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, used to be Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And they eventually decided like, yeah, you know what? Let's have an amicable divorce. We'd rather do our own Czech thing over here. You'd rather do your own Slovakian thing over there. You know, let's do it peaceful and orderly. So it's, I'm saying it's not impossible. Um, now with our current crop of, of elites and our current political factions, it may be sure. unlikely that it goes yeah. that gracefully. But, yeah. you know, I, I would say that um, it, it'll, it'll vary a lot depending on where you are I, I think that if you're a person in a major metropolitan area particularly in the northeast or on the west coast it's going to be messier as far as like the anarcho tyranny as you were saying it's already pretty anarcho tyrannical in a place like san francisco um yeah. and you know but places like texas where you are or florida where i am probably uh, won't be as bad um in terms of that sort of stuff um, Nobody said probably, I, folks. He didn't say definitely. So it's important. To understand yeah. That. And, yeah. And not I mean, as bad doesn't mean good either. Always. You don't know. Right. Y yeah. Yeah. There's bad yeah. and good. I think there's one very unique thing about how the British managed their decline of empire that I don't know we will have the same opportunity to do. And that is they had us. Yep. The British no, really good. passed the torch of global empire from themselves to the United States. And for you think about it, for them, it's a sweet deal. We pay all the bills. We do all the shit. We're staunch allies. We're not going to let anybody roll over them, period. That's not going to happen. And they, I think they had a very trusting relationship with the United States that we would be a good 
a good place to hand the baton to since they knew they couldn't run with it anymore. And then, you know, we're not going to go do everything the British did and try to recreate there. We're going to do our own, but it's kind of British centric in a way. If you look at the way it fans out around, it kind of put a bubble around Britain. So Britain had an extremely strong growing contemporary ally to hand off to. Who does the United States have that could even fill that role? And I don't know that there is anybody that could fill that role that we would want doing it. I don't think Russia could for all of the hype and the talk. Right. I don't think Russia has the the resources, the population, the wherewithal to do it. I'll tell you who I think does. And that's China. And that's some scary ass shit. Like you don't want like I don't want to cause any conflict with any nation. But I'll tell you one nation you don't want to live under their mentality is the Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, that that is one thing that made the British possibly unique in declining empires is that they were, and you know that their leaders were kind of wise enough to realize that like yeah. they needed to kind of become the junior partner to Team America, um, mm-hmm. and to sort of deliberately cultivate that relationship, and and you know thinking about even if there were a possible, um, you know empire to, for the u.s to hand off the baton to would america's leaders even have the wisdom to do that right no. if if there was an option like there there was a you know relatively uh free uh uh growing empire that we we're allied to would our current generation of leaders have the same prudence to to say all right you know let's hypothetically say it, like india suddenly becomes you know super prosperous and whatever yeah. and you know but would our leaders actually have the humility and wisdom to say, all right, we need to kind of start to step back and just sort of, you know, get under the wing of India. I, I don't yeah. think so. I think their their arrogance is like even surpassing any of the arrogance um, that the British elites had. I will tell you, um, you know, that was sort of my best case scenario is like a Soviet style. You know, we get a like a Gorbachev style of a president who's willing mm-hmm. to kind of let the system go in an orderly way. Um, worst case scenario uh, is nuclear war, obviously. And, and, and I, that is, that is a wild card in the decline and fall of the American empire. Yeah. Um, the last big empire that collapsed was the Soviet union. It is a miracle as far as I'm concerned that that thing fell apart and nothing nuclear happened. I mean, there was the accident at Chernobyl, but as far as nuclear weapons being used one way or another, either on purpose or by accident, even it is a miracle that the Soviet collapse did not involve any nuclear weapons going off. I'm not so sure, particularly with our current leaders seeming to want to simultaneously provoke Russia and China. Um, I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure that this thing could fall apart without there being something nuclear going along with it. And of course that's terrifying uh, to any sane, rational person. Um, I guess the only thing that would prevent that is a China and a Russia going, they have their problems. Let's not interfere, right? Like that's yeah. that's the you know. But then do our folks go out and provoke it intentionally to create a reason for their legitimacy? Because leaders often seek war because it's entertaining, and it also like people generally don't like to switch in the middle of a war, right? Like why was why was FDR like reelected, reelected, reelected? It was a lot to do with the U.S. being in the middle of World War II. We can't change right now. That's crazy talk. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously, if anything nuclear happens, that's 
were in uncharted historical waters. Yeah. Because when the British Empire fell apart, nukes were just being invented. And the Brits themselves didn't actually have nuclear weapons until their empire was mostly gone. So, and, you know, who knows if any British leaders would have ever wanted to even threaten the use of nukes to hang on to their empire. My guess is probably not. But, you know, so, so that empire collapsed before nukes were really a factor in it. Uh, the Soviets, again, I think it's, it's a miraculous fluke that it went as well as it did in terms of no nukes. But with Team America, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And then kind of in between those two, you know, rosy and horrible uh, pictures would be like a, a, a situation of chaotic uh, messy civil war, you know, domestically, if that did happen, obviously that would be, that'd be horrific. Um, but it would be less horrific than full on nuclear war would, you know, a, a, a nasty, messy American civil war, or even like a situation sort of like the troubles in Northern Ireland from the sixties to the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be terrible, but it's better than like mushroom clouds over every big city and you know, all that stuff. Do you think there'd be any potential for that to happen? Like it, like, you know, you thought maybe it could with the Soviet Union and not China and, and, and the U.S. tossing some nukes at each other. But, you know, a state like Texas says, screw it, we're gone, seizes all of the assets. And the Texas National Guard is already like the ninth largest military in in the world. There are some nuclear assets, to my knowledge, in Texas. Right. Just like there were in Ukraine. Right. So, like, you could have this potential for nuclear exchange domestically which is absolutely insane, but it doesn't mean it can't happen. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you, you know, know, a small tactical one on Austin, for instance, like having psychopathy enough to do that. Like we will break it and end it in one. Like we did, you know, the Japanese, like that kind of mindset. Yeah. I mean, imagine if Gorbachev, instead of being a relatively decent human being was, you know, a complete psychopath who thought that, holding the Soviet empire together was his God given mission yeah. and, you know, was willing you mean like, to you mean like Lincoln. Y- yeah. Lincoln um, with nukes. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Like the abusive spouse who's like, I would rather murder you than, than let you let divorce you me kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's going to be interesting if we ever do have a state constitutional referendum of secession where it's not the legislator getting together and doing it like they did in 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 the time of the, the war between the states but if it was legitimately kind of like Brexit like Texas actually it's it's not that hard to get initiatives on the ballot in Texas and in quite a few other states and there's a certain threshold where no matter how much the government doesn't want it there you've met the criteria it's on the freaking ballot and it you know what happens if you have 60 65% of the state of Texas or more vote for secession. What, what does that look like? Like it doesn't mean that the state will actually do it. Is it binding? How do, how do you handle it? Like, and then if they did, then what does it look like? Does it look like Brexit where it's like five years later, it's not quite you know, cut the last thread, you know, or does it look like really fast? Mm-hmm. What, what does that look like? And I, I think when we say that can't happen, if you told somebody that was about to happen in the Soviet Union in 1984, they looked at you like you had a lizard climbing out of your ear, right? Like this is all going to be gone in, in five to 10 years. No, no, you're crazy. What, what, I think John Lennon was the guy that said when they say it can't happen here, it's about to happen here. You know, I mean, I think that yeah. can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And and then, you know, there's also the kind of middle ground possibility where, you know, maybe the United States as an entity doesn't completely fragment into multiple pieces, but maybe 
whether the feds want it or not, there's just de facto a major devolution of power to the states and localities. And, you know, there are cases in empires of, of that where, like, if you look at the latter part of the Ottoman Empire, there were some provinces of the Ottoman Empire where, like, the local governor was really running the show. And yet, nominally, he's under the authority of the sultan and nominally yeah. the whatever. But in practical purposes, it's basically self-governing, you know, this area over here. And I think we already have seen this um, increasingly in recent years with, you know, starting with states uh, legalizing marijuana as an yeah. example of that. And the feds, you know, doing stuff a, a little bit, but not not really trying that hard to stop it. And then you've seen it, you know, with the states that have resisted a lot of the, the covid insanity, you know, yeah. you see it with with what DeSantis has done here in Florida, um, you know, where he's basically defying the feds a lot and. You know, there's what the law really is, is what will actually be enforced. And there might be all these rules still on the books saying, oh, states can't do this and the feds are in charge of that. But if states are kind of just increasingly just ignoring those rules and doing it and no one's really stopping them, then you could end up in this intermediate scenario where, for practical purposes, states and regions might be really kind of self-governing, but sort of nominally there's this loose, you know, it, it's kind of like if, yeah. if, if, if you're uh, familiar with medieval history, there was something for a while in Central Europe, basically what today is Germany, called the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. And the, the joke of historians is it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that was an extremely loose confederation. Yeah. And each of the little states in it was basically its own, you know, little sovereign country or whatever. And, yeah, there was a Holy Roman Emperor who nominally had certain, you know, titles and powers or yeah. whatever. But reality is that, you know, Bavaria was running Bavaria and Saxony was running Saxony and whatever. So that's another possibility that, you know, wouldn't be so bad. You know, somebody here said, um, why not the other way around? Let's say DeSantis wins. California loses their minds in a mental shutdown and decides they want to break off instead of a state like Florida or Texas breaking. I think that's possible. But then, like, then you got to start talking about actual domino effects. So if I'm Oregon or Washington, I don't like this because the balance of power politically has just shifted against me immensely. No California. Like, it's like no Texas. It's probably you're probably not going to have another Republican president. No California, you're probably not going to have another Democratic president anytime soon either. So now, you know, Oregon and Washington may be like, you know, we kind of don't want to be part of this thing over here if California's leading. We, we want to go with California. Oh, wait a minute. That's the Atlantic or the Pacific coast of the United States. That's every Pacific port. This starts having another cascading effect. Then you got in, in, in inland states from there like Idaho and Montana and, and Wyoming and all small populations, but they probably don't understand how much they rely on that shipping. Now there's a leverage point between there. Do they really want to become the readout and become their own thing? Does, does Western uh, Oregon and Western Washington have a different opinion than Eastern and West? Yeah. Like who says those things have to break where the lines are now? Nobody. And that whole cascade from that side would be really interesting to watch because then you're also going to have people like, all the elites in New York, all the elites in like Delaware and Connecticut in Rhode Island, like, okay, you're screwed now. You're going to live under Republican tyranny. That would be the terminology, right? They're coming for your sex changes or whatever. They're going to, you're going to, you know, mandate no one ever have an abortion again and you won't be able to have an abortion every third week or whatever. Like all of that kind of shit would get played up right now. And so it could go either direction. I think we think of states like Texas or Florida 
because they they have the resources to pull it off. California has every resource it needs to be an independent nation. Maybe not a well-run one, but, you know, as far as uh, the actual resources, being able to feed itself, shipping ports, trade capacity, population, the, the, the structure of their government. They have basically an analog to every cabinet position we have, et cetera. They could do it. There's, there's no reason they could. Yeah. And, you know, my own opinion is like, oh, if California wants to leave and I no longer have any California congressman or whatever, having any sort of a say over how I'm supposed to live. Bye. I'll, I'll help you pack. You know, I'll hold the door for you on the way out. You want to turn yourself, uh, you want to lose the restraining influ- influence of states like ours and turn yourself fully into a woke North Korea, like, all right. Uh, and then, you know, the consequences of that will be yours uh, to deal with. And, you know, maybe maybe people would start becoming more sane under those circumstances because they would have to actually be fully in charge of their own, you know, system. And as it turns uh, blatantly insane, maybe sane voices would, uh, would, would rise in California. I don't know. Maybe that's a delusional utopian fantasy. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing, though, is you pull up a map of California and there's an awful lot of red on that map. There is an awful lot of people there that wouldn't want to do that. That's what I'm saying. Like, even within yeah. these there, you know, people think of Texas as being super Republican and conservative and all. We have a lot of liberals here. We're, we're about a six to ten point minority majority uh, as, as far as, you know, one side to the other. Um that's a whole lot of people that don't want to be part of what you're doing. What are they going to do? Leave, break off their own piece of what you have and where are your conflicts going to be in the cities where all the stuff is like, I don't think there's a clean version of this. I, I think as clean as it looked in the Soviet union, if you talk to people over there, it wasn't quite so non bumpy. There just weren't tanks throwing shells at each other and bombs going off, but it, it wasn't necessarily easy. Yeah, yeah. Well, empires, um, you know, always tend to mix people together in new ways internally in ways that they weren't before the empire. And part of this is just naturally like if you're, you know, living in a big empire, then it's probably not so hard to move around internally with, within it, you know, just move from one or another. But then also sometimes it's it's a deliberate sort of colonization type strategy or a divide and conquer type strategy. And a lot of that happened in the Soviet Union where they would like bring Russians into the non-Russian part of the Soviet Union um, deliberately. And so part of what's going on in Ukraine is a long-term fallout of that. The fact that there are so many, you know, ethnic linguistic Russians in Eastern Ukraine is, is, um, you know, a legacy of that internal migration and colonization. And, you know, the fact that empires often, um, at least before they start to totally collapse, often facilitate travel and um, movement, and so, yeah, there's, you know, there's obviously people who are really culturally, let's say, northeastern urban Americans, but who just happen right. to retire to Florida or move to Florida. Right. Mm. And they may not fit in with the majority yeah. or, you know, Californians who move to Texas, but don't abandon their Californian uh, culture and values um, and maybe go to Austin or whatever. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's. It's it's interesting times, I suppose, at the end of it all. And if I wasn't personally involved, if I didn't have to worry about the potential of horrible things like anarcho tyranny and civil war and yeah. nuclear war or whatever, if I didn't have a personal stake in this, just as a neutral uh, historian, if I was like up in a spaceship or whatever, I'd be like, man, bring me the extra popcorn. Yeah, um, we'll this is about to get yeah, really entertaining. Yeah. yeah. 
And there might be a point for some geographic uh, decision-making if this goes that way, because I look back to the, the Civil War, and assuming you weren't drafted, the smartest thing you could have done is, like, move to Maine. Right? That would have been your orbiting space station to watch everything. Move to Maine, wait till it's over, and then pick a place you want to be. Yeah, that or do or or pull a Jeremiah Johnson, right? What what was the war that he completely missed out on? I think it was the Mexican American War. Yeah. Where Jeremiah Johnson like stumbles down from the mountains after being up hunting grizzly bears for years, yeah. and and they're like, oh yeah, a war happened. He's like, oh really? Yeah, Who was didn't, it with? Didn't, you know? didn't know. Didn't no know. idea. So yeah, yeah. Pull, a, pull a Ted Kaczynski and just you know minus the bombs and just go go live in a shack, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, minus the bombs. Yeah, I, I. I I do think that we're going to deal with some piece of this in our lifetime. I think we're young and you and I are young enough that we'll see some more progression toward this. I do think this is an inevitability that we will somehow break apart or at least collapse from global empire. Maybe we look more like Britain if we can figure out how to do that. But I already talked about what's different about Britain and their empire collapsed because they had a baton to hand off. There's something people don't know about the Soviet Union. And and this is where you can see Russia's point of view if you're willing to look at it with a lot of shit that's going on. They enabled the stability. They paid a lot of bills for these satellite republics after they were gone. So like Ukraine's gone, Lithuania's gone, et cetera, right? Estonia, et cetera. Like these countries now, countries themselves had a lot of debt. And Russia paid a lot of their freaking bills for a long time. It was like Screw you, Dad. I'm moving out, but Dad pays the rent for five more years. Like, I'm back to who's going to do that here. Mm-hmm. You know, do you see, uh, 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 let's say something like the southeastern United States, like Texas, all the way over to freaking Florida? Sorry, Louisiana, you can't come. Uh, becomes like its own thing, and then there's like this, 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 this share, this burden of our national debt that we owe. And Uncle Sam going, you know, it's okay, kid. You moved out. We'll, we'll take care of your share of this. Like, I don't necessarily, or like, how much is it actually, like, one of these things when people say, like, well, if Texas goes, then Oklahoma or whatever should go with you. And that's why I'm saying no to Louisiana. Like, we in Texas put in more than we get back. California don't like the place, but they put in more than they get back. Florida puts in more. A lot of states don't. We're where their money goes. If we take them with us, now we have to fill that role. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I again, I think we're back to another place where in people's minds, this is all cleaner than it ever would be. Yeah, and a place that doesn't get, that's used to getting subsidized and then suddenly is completely on its own um, can be a pretty rough place to live in. And a wonderful Cuba. example is Cuba. Exactly. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Soviets were were paying more into Cuba, an informal colony of theirs during the Cold War. Um, they were paying more into Cuba than they were getting back in value from Cuba. And so, yeah, when the Soviet Union fell apart and, and Cuba, you know, wasn't like an integral part of it like Ukraine was or something like this. And so when the Soviet Union fell apart, it was like, oh, you know, the Russians are no longer uh, sending all these subsidies and all these goods and whatever to Cuba. And then, yeah, Cuba, which was never a wealthy country to begin with, um, Man, it got a lot worse for quite a while. So yeah, yeah, kind yeah, of. Yeah, that was kind of like a, a whoops, and we're stuck with it anyway, because the whole partnership was predicated on a Russian military capability in Cuba, 
And of course, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, that kind of all went away. And like, gee, we're not going to we're not going to go do that shit again. So even the time between then and when the Soviet Union fell apart and that plug up, it was kind of like we're kind of stuck with these guys now. Mm -hmm. They didn't really benefit them in any way. Like going into it. Yeah, we'll have like this ally. They're 90 miles off the coast of Florida. But it ended up having no tactical advantage for them either. Yeah, and that's something that, again, becomes increasingly common during a declining empire is that you you take over these informal possessions, but like half the time you're paying more for them than they're giving you back in any sort of benefit, whether it's military, you know, strategic or economic or whatever. And I've come to call these situations um, uh, scrappy-do states and moral hazard because you think about like the U.S. government's relationship uh, with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, with Ukraine, like these, these countries, they get way more benefit from team America than they give back to team America in any measurable or, or even intangible way. Yeah. And so one of the effects of this, and, and you, you can see this pretty strongly in the case of um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Ukraine right now, those governments are way more aggressive and reckless against their enemies and their neighbors because they're little, little scrappy do. And so they're just like that little kid, probably all of us, you know, Gen Xers had in our neighborhoods where we were always fighting each other, whatever. There was always that one kid who was a annoying little shrimp. The toad. He had a, he had a big right? mouth. Yeah, yeah. Just like on, on, on the Christmas story and whatever. Yeah. I, I knew those kids in real life. Yep. The little annoying big mouth kid who went around, starting fights with everybody because his big buddy or his big brother or whatever was always going to come bail his ass out. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a very common thing in declining empires as well as they take on more and more of those and those, um, you know, whether they're formal or informal imperial possessions, these client states, they're more harm than good to the empire itself. And they tend to draw it into unnecessary wars. They tend to be a drain on resources. So, yeah, I mean, you could just imagine Israel, Ukraine and Saudi Arabia would all be much more cautious and much more restrained in yes. what they do if oh, Team America wasn't there to bail them out. Massively. They might, like, I, the Ukraine conflict would have ended in 30 days. If, if it even happened, because... If it even happened, because it may never have happened. The Ukrainians might have had to, you know, negotiate some sort of a deal right away if there hadn't been the possibility of U.S. and NATO coming and rescuing them. Well, if we weren't propping up the Ukraine military for the last eight or nine years, let's say eight, though, before it happened, the entire civil conflict in Donbass may have, may have resolved itself. I mean, there, yeah. that, that's another, like, you don't know what you're causing to happen when you interfere with somebody else's fight. And I've, I've always found it that 99% of the time, if you see a fight about to happen, the best thing you can do is stay out of it. Oh, for sure. Right. And like, it's a little old lady being attacked by a guy with a hatchet. Okay. I'll, I'll pop him. I'm not even going to get involved in it. Boom. You're done. Right. So if I'm going to enter the conflict, I'm going to enter it very decisively and I'm going to end it instantly, or I'm not going to touch it. The worst thing you can do is stand in the middle with your arms out. Or stand behind one side and go, I got his back, but you don't get involved. Like those things always like cascade into just horrific things. Yeah. And you, you know, if you don't know the people involved and you don't know the backstory of what led up to the conflict, I mean, in real life, whether it's individuals in street fights or whether it's wars in real life, most of the time when a fight happens, it's not between a pure good guy and a pure bad guy. 
It's not 100% all the blame mm-hmm. for the fight is on one side and that's it. That happens, but it's extremely rare. Ask any you know person who's been a street cop in rough neighborhoods or who's been a bouncer in rough bars. They'll tell you 99% of the time, both parties help to provoke the fight. Mm-hmm. Both parties are, are engaging in it. And if you actually know the details of what led up to it, 99% of the time, both people involved are at least some degree bad guys and deserve some of the blame for the whole thing happening. So, you know, I would say that's just as true of wars. Um, it's relatively rare in history for there to be a war where a hundred percent of the, the aggression is on one side and zero percent is on the other. And these guys are just being jerks and attacking just, you know, the way that the U S media, for example, talks about the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they go, Oh, this, completely unprovoked you sure know it is. like like putin just randomly woke up one morning he's like eh, i'm gonna invade ukraine you know just because yeah. i'm evil and that's what i do that's what i um, do yeah yeah and you know and the reality is like you said if you go back even just eight nine years into the the story of it not saying uh putin is blameless not saying you know any of that but like the idea that he was un completely unprovoked yeah. is is absurd he had a lot more and i'm not saying he's justified in doing what he's doing but relative in relative terms he had more reason from his perspective to invade Ukraine than George W. Bush had to invade Iraq. Like that's, that's just reality. You know, yeah. if, if, if you look oh, at no, the that's things, totally reality, you know, I think it's another sign of empire at its, at, at its, it's already gone over its precipice and the decline in that society. The majority will believe nothing we do is wrong. Nothing. Any of our friends do is wrong. And anything any of our adversaries do is wrong. Like yep. it's an absolutist. Like when you say things like there are two sides to this story, you're a tool of Putin, right? I got, yep. I have people literally when this all started saying, Hey, here's what's actually happened up for the last eight years. Here's the backstory. I had people physically threaten me by email for speaking that way, you know? And, 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 and I mean, it, it, it's insane. And, but that, that's when you know, You've abandoned reason and logic, and that's when you're going to do illogical things in trying to, and then you're in, you're back to incompetence. We said earlier, malicious, yes, but competent is the empire builder, or they don't get an empire. But an empire inheritor, you know, there's no limits to stupidity. Yeah, and I would say that it's it's the same thing with hypocrisy that it is with corruption, right? Like every empire is always built in some to some degree on hypocrisy and corruption. But when the empire is relatively strong and running relatively smoothly, the hypocrisy, like the corruption, are kept in manageable limits to where mm. it's not threatening to undo the entire you know, system. But when the empire is in decline and collapse, just like the corruption suddenly just goes crazy. Right. Um, same thing with the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy just becomes so over the top and ridiculous that, you know, um, George W. Bush invades Iraq um, and, you know, overthrows the entire country and tips it into civil war and occupies it for, what, a decade or whatever. And um, on, on complete BS, you know, Iraq had done like less than anything, less than yeah. nothing to threaten America uh, in the lead up to that war. Um and that's all fine, and we'll just sweep that under the rug and now talk about what a nice old retired man W is painting his pictures. Yeah, yeah. But, but Putin... And the world is a better place without Saddam Hussein in it. Yeah. There's yeah. a shitload of people who I think the world would be a better place if they weren't in it, but I'm not going to start going off and randomly popping them in the head either. Yeah, you, you know, know the, house, the house of Saud is pretty oppressive and nasty yeah. and whatever, but 
I wouldn't support, you know, using military force to try and overthrow them for like a hundred different reasons. Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there's this, um, double standard is, is common to, to imperial thinking where, um, you have to, um, you know, call out as, as horrifically evil, the things that your enemy does. And yet you do the same things or perhaps even worse, but you come up with some sort of apologetics, gymnastic dance to justify it, you know? So, you know, if China or Russia or somebody does a drone strike and kills some people, it's like, oh, this is just proof of what evil SRBs and yeah. psychopath regime. Where yeah, where murdered a shitload. Well, that was different. They were all bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that, that was, uh, and even if it comes out, they're like, oh, yeah, you just blew up a wedding party full of civilians. They're like, well, you know, mistakes were made, but we were pursuing good goals. We were trying oh, to protect to freedom. Die. That's why it's you okay. You had to have collateral damage. What it makes me think, remember the old movie with Jamie Lee Curtis and Arnold Schwarzenegger? Uh, true lies. Yeah. And she finds out he's a spy and he's like, did you ever kill anybody? He goes, yes, but they were all bad. Right. <laughs> like, like that makes it like they were all bad, you know? Uh, and, and that popular culture thing is how you program the mind. So that was just a funny, stupid movie, not based on anything to do with reality. But here we are talking about it. I guess that movie's like 30 some odd years old now. And so it's, it's had its effect in getting that mindset of it's okay to kill people if they're bad. Well, how do you know if they're bad? Well, if they're against America, they must be. Yeah, well, it's uh, in a simple, easy world when you have a simple dichotomy. We're good guys. They're bad guys. Well, you shouldn't interfere in elections. Yeah, but we do it all the time. Well, that's OK. Yeah, because we're doing it for good, noble humanitarian reasons. Yeah. And, you know, another example along those lines of something being kind of pushed into people's consciousness via mass media and clearly on purpose, I believe, is how um, torture became increasingly portrayed as the right thing to do in a lot of American media, really starting with that show 24 and then lots of other shows and movies uh, during the war on terror years, you know, the good guys would engage in torture and the message it's sending is like, look at this square jawed, badass action hero, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, you know what? Sometimes he has to torture people. Yes. Because, you know, there was, there was an episode or a series of 24 where they ended up torturing one of their own one of the people that worked at the the facility and they were wrong. And then she went back to work. Now you got to think like this one was, was tortured. And then like, I understand and went back to work once they cleared that, that they were wrong and she didn't do anything. That's some Stockholm syndrome. That is some serious <laughs> shit right there. You know, I never noticed it. Like I watched that show when it was new and we were rewatching a season of it. And I'm like, holy shit, how did I miss that? And I'm like, I guess I'm just a little bit more unplugged from the Matrix than I was back then or something, man. Like, you got some crazy balls to be inferring that, like, you, you torture your own person. And, the same, and it's obviously a one-day show, right? It's every episode's an hour. So, like, one hour ago, being tortured in the back room, now sitting back at the computer doing her job. Yeah. We try to save America from an atomic bomb by... Chechnyan rebels or some shit that made no sense whatsoever at all. But it was an incredibly popular show because it fed that narrative. So as we've been here like two hours, let's kind of wrap this up. What is, here's the question nobody ever wants, because I hate it when I get it. How long do we have, man? Um, and I know it depends. So worst case scenario, how quick does this like completely break down? U.S. empire fall apart. Best case scenario as far as long. You know, I don't know if it's best case, but longest case scenario. How long do you think it could last? Yeah, well, I mean, f- for starters, like I, I definitely think we're somewhere in the latter 
phases of the American right. empire as we have known it. But yeah, like you said, there's a big difference between it's going to fall apart in the next few years versus it's going to be another couple generations. So, um, you know, the, the worst and quickest way for the American empire to fall would be nuclear war. That's just, you know, yeah. absolute worst case scenario could all end tomorrow, literally. Um, and then, you know, there's also the possibility of a drawn out still a few more decades um, kind of long, slow decline, like some empires have experienced, like the Ottoman Empire or the British Empire, um, kind of a gradual winding down of it, um, which may or may not then suddenly end like the Ottomans had a long, slow decline. But then World War One dramatically, like said, boom, all right, you're done. Yeah, um, I my gut is that is that the American empire as we know it probably doesn't make it in its existing form another decade or two. That's my gut as a, as a history uh, dork who's been studying empires for 20 some odd years. Um, I, I just, but I could be wrong, you know, but um, that that's my gut feeling is that at most a decade or two and, you know, it can end in a revolution where basically it's the same territory, but it's a completely different system and group of leaders in charge. It can end in breaking apart into multiple pieces. Um, it can end, you know, in, in parts of it possibly falling to, to another, you know, outside aggressor. Um, and then there's the possibility for sort of all of the above. There's the possibility mm -hmm. that like multiple scenarios can play out at once and also depending on what region you're in. So, you know, there could be um, some areas of the American empire that become self-governing, you know, states, uh, nation states. And yet at the same time, there could be other areas that get taken over by outside powers. And there could be some areas where there is kind of intermittent, um, low level, um, you know, warfare, insurgency and things like that. Again, one possibility that might happen in some places, at least for a while, is look at the troubles in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. where you had this, you know, this kind of like low intensity off and on thing where violence would flare up and it would go down. There was insurgency, there was counterinsurgency. Um, but it wasn't like a full fledged a hundred percent all in civil war. Yeah. Um, it was this kind of like back and forth between, you know, the British state. And a and, lot of uh, it was what you saw and what it was presented as, but a lot of it was also just like the opportunity to sell scores. So I see that being very dangerous with the political climate being created here right now. There are people that literally believe the oceans are going to drown us all in 10 years. Never mind, you've been saying it for 40. They're convinced. And anybody that's uh, doing anything that's not going to stop that needs to be killed. I mean, that's where their mind is. There are people that see a racial divide. There are people that see uh, conservatives as evil because they're against abortion on demand at all points in you know, along the process, including one minute after birth, right? That's that enough. Like there's a ton, there's, there's a racial conflict under uh, undertoning the country, whether you're supposed to say it or not, there is. And it isn't just black and white. There are other issues there. There are huge gangs that have territories that they would like to expand. And I'm not talking about the professional ones in DC. I'm talking about, you know, your Latin King type gangs and, and what have you. Like, there's all types of violence ready to erupt and spill out. And the illusion that there's something that would cap it is a lot of what stops it. Like the, the police will roll in or the national guard will roll in the minute that it's evident that that's not the case you can. And, and again, I don't, 
I don't ascribe to the things like Patriots the Coming Collapse from James Wesley Rawls, where the whole country just goes completely to shit overnight in that scenario. But if you don't think that there would be serious bloodshed, if you think of like what happened in, you know, the Balkan Wars, right? Like, yep. and, and families like attacking other families just so they wouldn't be seen as part of the other side, because then they would be in danger from their own shit like that. Like that can happen. I, I believe that. I believe that probably will happen in some level. The question is how much and how bad. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. It's, it's going to be a mess. Um, you know, I've, I've got, so many uh, criticisms and whatever of the American empire that on the one hand, I'm, you know, not exactly sad to see it end, but at the same time, I'm nervous about what happens uh, in the meantime, you know, what the transition period is like, um, you know, how bad it gets, whatever, you know, I'm not going to lie. I've been, I've been stressing a bit over the past few years about how this thing plays out because it's just, you know, doesn't doesn't seem like it's heading anywhere really positive for the most part. I think what makes people like you and myself uneasy is saying, this is what I see coming. And then five years go by and you go, well, I pretty much got all that right. So then when you look past it and you see other things coming, you start to feel like I want to be wrong. But the longer you go and the longer you get the next five years right, and then the next five years right, so now you got a decade and you're like 90% spot on to what happened. When you look at another two decades and say, well, here's where we go from here, you start to feel like, shit, I probably am right, and I don't like this. Um, on that yeah. note, people that, that have been listening to you, they clearly like you, the, the, the discussion going. I'm sure they'd want to hear more from you if this is the first time that they've, they've come by you. So you can you tell people about, again, your podcast, and let's talk also about your course that you have here. I've got up on the screen. Yeah, sure. So um – Again, my podcast is just called the Dangerous History Podcast, so you can go to DangerousHistoryPodcast.com and get to my homepage, or you could just put in Dangerous History Podcast wherever you like to consume uh, your podcasts. And I've been doing it eight years. I've got over 250 episodes. I just yesterday put out a massive over five-hour episode in my ongoing Woodrow Wilson series, taking apart the life and career of Woodrow Wilson in painstaking detail, because it's even worse than you think when you dig into the details. So just yesterday, I put out a five and a half hour episode, um, part 10 in the Woodrow Wilson series. Um, last month I, I taught, uh, over zoom, this three part course that you're showing now for renegade university, uh, called the decline and, em and fall of empires. And, it's still available. The recording of it is still available for anybody who wants to purchase access to it there. And, um, you know, it was three sessions of about two hours a piece. And I would basically like lecture on this stuff for hour to hour and a half. And then we'd have Q and a, we had some you know, pretty, pretty interesting Q and a in some of the sessions. So they can check that out if they want to hear more from me about the stuff we've been talking about. Um, and then a couple other things I, I just want to mention, uh, I will be at, the Tennessee, what is it, the Self-Reliance Festival, the one that our mutual friend uh, Nicole uh, puts on there in Camden. Um, I'm going to be one of the speakers there in awesome. in late March. Yeah, and I, I heard you're not going to be there this time, Jack. I'm not. Uh, gonna, I can't go to all of them. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was disappointed. I thought it'd be my chance to finally meet you in person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll be speaking there, and I'll be speaking about this sort of stuff about decline and fall of empires. So um, anybody can, you know, love to love to see any fans there. And um, and then the last thing I want to mention that I just uh, recently got uh, set up and running is that um, I put together for those of you uh, who want to sign up 
for my email list, my email newsletter, um, I put together a thank you gift. If you go to dangerousbib.com, the word dangerous and bib.com, um, and if you sign up for my list there, you will get what I call my dangerous American history bibliography, which is a list of over 150 books on American history recommended by me that um, are sorted into like sub, you know, categories of topics and that have um, comments and things about most of the books by me, you know, telling you like what, what it's about or why I think it's important or whatever like that. So anyway, if anyone goes to dangerousbib.com, puts in your email address, um, you will get the dangerous bibliography and you'll be uh, getting newsletter emails and stuff from me as well that I hope you will enjoy. So yeah, dangerous history podcast. There you go, guys. Dangerousbib.com and uh, get all the information. I got a question for you. Do you hate money or have you claimed your podcast on fountain? Ah, um, that's, so I'm going to take uh, that response to be, you hate money. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, no, it, it just that I'm, I've been overwhelmed by so many different things I've been dealing with, uh, since I went, I went solo, but, um, the thing is right now, it takes five minutes. W- well, my feed, uh, currently is not like my own entirely. I'm part of a network and oh. host, hosted through, um, shoot, uh, megaphone. Okay. And so I, I tried to to do that with fountain and basically because the email that's associated with the feed apparently is not my personal, you know, email, I wasn't able to do it. So I'm going to have to repatriate my show back to my own feed. And to be honest with you, I've just been so overwhelmed with other random yeah. tasks yeah. Of, of trying to build this podcast even more and whatever that I just haven't gotten to that. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a project to I bet I know a guy that can help with that. Okay. There he is right there. That's not him. That's his kids. So shoot me an email. I bet you I got somebody who can help you with that because okay. you know, you should, you should get your money because you know, I listen to your podcast. You know, I might actually like send you some sats or something if you were over there. Uh, T, uh, it's CJ, seriously. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. It was a fantastic, fantastic discussion. Well, it's been a lot of fun, and I really appreciate you having me on again. And um, well, I hope it some in-person event or whatever will eventually bump into each other. That'd be great. That would be awesome. You're always welcome here, too. I do a thing every year. Oh, cool. Yeah, when's the next one? Uh, November. They're always November. Okay. Every time. Usually yeah. the 11th. Usually. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was still uh, teaching college full-time, um, that would have been tough for me to make. And that's why yeah. I never really kind of paid attention to when they were in the past. But, yep. um, my schedule is more oh, uh, flexible yeah. than it used to yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. I have yeah. more opportunity to travel to things and whatever. So cool, man. Well, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. All right, folks with that, I just want to finish up real quick here and remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T S P A Z tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is a new one. Never brought it around before, though I have mentioned it and promised I would bring it around eventually. This is made by a company called South Chicago Packing. It's Wagyu Beef Tallow. Now, Wagyu Beef Fat is the ultimate beef fat. 
This stuff is amazing, and you get a huge, giant tin of it, 42 ounces. And what's it good for? Searing, sautéing, frying, uh, marinating. You name it. If you want fat in it, this is the fat to use. It is absolutely delicious. It has a really high smoke point. Now, I learned about this stuff from Guga at Guga Foods and Suvi Everything. It's two hugely successful YouTube channels. Maybe somebody out there can help me. I, I linked to one of his videos in this write-up. But there, the one I found it on, I can't find now. He took this fat, he took this Wagyu beef tallow, he put it in a dish, and he set it on a smoker, and he smoked the fat. That sounds weird, but no, he used a barbecue smoker and smoked the fat to infuse it with smoke flavor. And then he threw it in the refrigerator so it would solid up like butter. And then he sous vide a steak. And after the steak was sous vide, nicely seasoned all, he slathered this on the steak and seared the steak with the smoked Wagyu fat. And it apparently was amazing. I haven't tried that one yet. I have used it for searing sous vide steaks, though, and it is fantastic. I've uh, been big since I'm keto on the cauliflower rice thing. So I now I, I always fry my cauliflower, cauliflower rice in this stuff, veggies, mushrooms, steak, chicken, anything. Fried chicken. You can't have fried chicken, Jack, you're keto. Fry the chicken without the batter. It's delicious. Use this when you do it. Check this stuff out. It's amazing. And remember, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping, no matter where you event or what you eventually buy. Just start at tspaz.com. It just takes you to this little section of the website here. Everything there I own, I use, and I, I, I would buy it again. I'm definitely going to buy this again when it runs out. One little thing about this stuff. Reading the reviews, and I mentioned this in the write-up, there's people like, Mine was opened and somebody took a whole bunch of it out. No, that didn't happen. I don't think there's a Wagyu beef fat stealer in the post office. Those guys do steal stuff, but that's probably not what happened. Wagyu fat melts at a very low temperature compared to your typical beef towel. It's very soft. It's like room temperature butter when you open the thing. And if there's enough heat, it'll actually melt. And it kind of like it in my own cabinet, it kind of shifts where the hole is and what the hole looks like in it. So that's what that is. Some people shouldn't talk to other people, and some of them write Amazon reviews. Also, remember, become a member of the MSB. You help support this show at 18.3 cents an episode. Get a bunch of discounts and get your money back many times over per year. With that, has been Jack Spearco. Today, along with C.J. Kilmer, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.